When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, amigos. My name is Jared Halverson. This is Unshaken. And today we have our work and our glory cut out for us with section 88 of the Doctrine and Covenants. This is, by some measurements, the longest section of the Doctrine and Covenants, not by number of verses, but perhaps by, by area, <laughs> the length and the depth of this, of this revelation. It's an incredible one. In our family, whenever we have a, a major meal to eat, yeah, we'll set the table and lay, lay out the spread and just say, today we feast like kings. Well, uh, if you've gotten used to feasting upon the words of Christ uh, as we've gone through the scriptures in this last uh, year and a half, today we feast like kings. And it's going to be an incredible experience. I pray that the Holy Ghost will help us make sense of some of the things that are more difficult. There is some deep doctrine in this revelation. And at the same time, there is so much comfort running throughout. Uh, Joseph Smith originally called it the olive leaf. And there's something to be said for that based on what we studied last week. In section 87, where we finished last week's lesson, was this prophecy on war. And not just the civil war, but war from there crescendoing and culminating in, in war being poured out upon all nations. Now that's a heavy subject. In fact, Jedediah M. Grant described Joseph receiving that revelation and said, The prophet stood in his own house when he told several of us of the night the visions of heaven were opened to him in which he saw the American continent drenched in blood, and he saw nations rising up against nation. The prophet gazed upon the scene his vision presented, until his heart sickened, and he besought the Lord to close it up again. It reminds me of the vision that he and Sidney Rigdon had in section 76, the vision of the sons of perdition, when the Lord says, oh, I'm, I'm just, you know, part the veil super briefly, just boop. Uh, I don't want to freak anyone out over what they're having to see there. So as soon as I show them a little, I close up the vision again. And that was Joseph's desire as far as these visions of, of war being poured out. It's with that heaviness of heart that we then turn the page to section 88. Because if 87 was the prophecy on war, 88 is the reassurance of peace. That's why he called it the olive leaf. We talk about handing out an olive or extending an olive branch this symbol of peace towards uh, a potential enemy. And if you think about this olive leaf that we have in section 88, it's a large leaf, okay? But as Joseph said about it, and you can see this in the section heading, it was plucked from the tree of paradise. It was the Lord's message of peace to us. Now, plucked from the tree of paradise, that brings us to the very end of the book of Revelation. And there'll be some parallels between the book of Revelation and what we study today. But in the very last chapter of the New Testament, Revelation 22, John is seen in vision the celestial city. The earth has finally received its paradisiacal glory. And John saw a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. Maybe that's where that sea of glass before his throne comes. It's been poured out from this river of water of life, clear as crystal. Well, in the midst of the street of it, John continues, and on either side of the river was there the tree of life, 
which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month. Sounds like an amazing tree. That was the whole goal and aim of Lehi's dream. How do we get to the tree of life? Well, there it is, the focal point in this part of, of John's vision. And can you imagine it bearing 12 manner of fruit? Again, 12, that symbolic number, the 12 tribes of Israel. Yeah, I'm amazed at the differences of fruit out there and people's tastes as they're drawn to one or to the other. And to have 12 manner of fruits, oh, there's something on this tree for everyone. It's not some kind of bland, vanilla for everyone kind of approach. The Lord rejoices in our diversity, our, our different gifts, our different tastes. And so to have different fruit growing on the same tree is so amazing. And it yields that fruit every month. It's never out of season. The love of God, this fruit that is more delicious than anything you could possibly imagine. So no matter what your love language is, 12 manner of fruit, no matter when you need to feast upon it, it yields that fruit every single month. There, in the, in the midst of the, of the glory of God, grows the tree of life. And then this final phrase to describe it, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. We always focus on the fruit, and we should. But the leaves of that tree, you get the, the idea behind this in section 88, the Lord's olive leaf, that's for the healing of the nations. And having just emerged from this devastating and depressing prophecy on war, the saints and Joseph himself needed this, this reassurance. This revelation will speak of comfort, even the ultimate comforter. It will speak of resurrection and redemption, since, as we learned last week, the war poured out upon all nations will result in the death and misery of many souls. But this revelation will help people see their place in the cosmos, uh, the, the degrees of glory painted before them all over again. They'll see the hand of God in its infinite and its intimate nature, reaching down even unto us in our war-torn world, inviting us to come unto him and find the Savior's peace. In fact, it was during Vietnam, especially near the end as it was becoming more and more controversial, should the United States stay in, stay in this war that seemed unwinnable. And Harold B. Lee at the time was asked by a reporter about the Latter-day Saint, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints' position on the war. Now, there were those that were present that knew this was a trap, because what was he going to say? If he said, oh, well, we're against the war, then the reporters could spin it and say, oh, well, the LDS Church is anti-American. But if they said that they supported the United States war effort, well, that's strange to have a church that's, that's supportive of war and devastation. It was kind of like those experiences that Jesus had so often in the New Testament, where it's darned if you do and darned if you don't. And yet Jesus somehow always split the middle and came away unscathed. Well, that same inspiration helped uh, Harold B. Lee navigate this difficult question. And his response was this. We, together with the whole Christian world, abhor war. But, the Savior said, in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. The Savior was not talking about the peace that can be achieved between nations, by military force, or by negotiation in the halls of parliaments. Rather, he was speaking of the peace we can each have in our own lives when we live the commandments and come unto Christ with broken hearts and contrite spirits. Well, President Lee split the middle perfectly with that response. We, we don't support war, but we also understand that the world will be full of it. 
It will be poured out upon all nations. Yes, ultimately we will find peace on earth, but really only when the Prince of Peace himself returns to rule and reign. Until then, it's peace on an individual level that we're seeking. And it's his peace that he gives to us in the midst of all of the chaos and contention that surrounds us. And that's exactly what the Lord is offering them in section 88 as he extends to them this olive leaf. It begins, verse 1, Verily thus saith the Lord, unto you who have assembled yourselves together to receive his will concerning you. Like so many other revelations in the Doctrine and Covenants, this one came as a result of the saints' unity and heartfelt desire. It was a conference of high priests in Kirtland that gathered together. The minutes of the meeting said this, Brother Joseph arose and said, To receive revelation and the blessings of heaven, it was necessary to have our minds on God and exercise faith and become of one heart and of one mind. Sound like Zion? Therefore, he recommended all present to pray separately and vocally to the Lord for him to reveal his will unto us concerning the upbuilding of Zion and for the benefit of the saints and for the duty and employment of the elders. Accordingly, we all bowed down before the Lord, after which each one arose and spoke in his turn his feelings and determination to keep the commandments of God and then proceeded to receive a revelation. What an interesting scene to pray together, one after the other, vocally, to get up and, and basically bear witness and, and extend their own commitment to obey the commandments of God. We want direction from God on how to build up Zion. Well, we are trying to prove to God that we're worthy of those kinds of directions, that Zion is on our, in our heart, it's on our mind. Please let us know how to build up thy kingdom. And how could God not want to answer that kind of prayer? In fact, verse 2 says, Behold, this is pleasing unto your Lord. God loved the scene that was playing out before him. And the angels rejoice over you. We'll see the work of these angels later on in this revelation. The alms of your prayers have come up into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth and are recorded in the book of the names of the sanctified, even them of the celestial world. There again we see that title, Lord of Sabaoth, not Sabbath. Yes, the Sabbath is, is coming, a day of rest, a millennium of peace. But in the meantime, he is the Lord of Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. El Señor de los ejércitos, I learned in Spanish, which shocked me the first time I read it. I was like, what? The Lord of the armies? The only word I knew for ejércitos in Spanish was, was armies. So I actually had to go back to my English scriptures to see what, was that, what does that say in my language? And when it said Lord of hosts... It changed my entire perspective on what that, what that phrase meant. This is the same Lord that spoke to them in section 87, that the Lord of armies is still addressing them. And he will be the Lord of Sabaoth until the earth is prepared to receive him as the Lord of Sabbath. Notice two other phrases there. The alms of your prayers. I love that. To think of an alm as something we give to the poor. Right? But in this case, God, God is not far from poor, right? Riches of his mercy, as the scriptures say. But to consider prayer and alms, I think that would change the way that we pray. I think it would change the, the understanding that we are offering God something that he truly desires from us, something that pleases him, something the angels rejoice over. 
I'm not just saying a prayer. I am offering God an alms, a gift, an offering, a self-sacrifice. I'm laying my heart and my mind on the altar. That's the alms of prayer. And as we do so, our names are recorded in the book of the names of the sanctified. Back in section 85, when we talked about having your names recorded on the book of the law of the Lord or this book of remembrance, yes, we want our names there. Now, verse 3, wherefore, or because you've come and offered this alm of prayer, wherefore I now send upon you another comforter, even upon you, my friends, that it may abide in your hearts, even the Holy Spirit of promise, which other comforter is the same that I promised unto my disciples, as is recorded in the testimony of John. Now here he calls them my friends. We saw that title given them a, a few chapters ago. And if you remember one of the verse that we read from, from John, the same chapters that he's referring to here, he said, you're my friends and not my servants, because servants don't need to know what their masters are doing. But friends are aware of what's on the mind and heart of their, of their other friend. And so here I am, my friends, trying to let you know the big picture and what's going on here. Specifically, my promise of another comforter to you. Now, he's going to talk about this more later. When we get to section 130, he'll explain a little bit more about this second comforter being a personal manifestation, a personal visitation of the Savior Jesus Christ. The Holy Ghost, or the gift of the Holy Ghost, is the first comforter. And nothing seems to bring that spirit of peace and reassurance, quite like the Holy Ghost with us. But like we talked about telestial versus terrestrial versus celestial, to go from the Holy Ghost as your comforter to the Savior Jesus Christ as your second comforter. I mean, take Harold B. Lee's words literally in that respect. My peace I leave with you, that I, the Prince of Peace, will come to you. And what does that coming signify? This is, this is a personal coming preparatory to the second coming to all the earth. And as he explains in verse 3, this coming is coming with the reassurance of eternal life. This is having one's calling and election made sure. This is the Holy Spirit of promise. And what he's promising you is that you're going to make it. Again, think of the context. Despite all of the wars being poured out upon all nations, your names are written not on a casualty list, but on the list of the names of the sanctified, the celestial world. That's what he says in verse 4. This comforter is the promise which I give unto you of eternal life, even the glory of the celestial kingdom. Could there possibly be a greater source of comfort? This confidence that comes through Christ, that no matter what happens, I'm going to make it. It's going to be okay. It reminds me of uh, Joseph B. Worthland's great message, Come what may and love it. So despite the wars described in section 87, this promise of comfort in 88, you're going to be okay eternally. I mean, in the weeks following uh, the 9-11 attacks back in 2001, my wife and I had just had our first child. Uh, she was born in April. The attack was in September. And in October, we were supposed to be flying to New York. And it was a different world, if you remember those days. And just the, the confusion and the chaos. Wars and rumors of wars. Remember we talked about that with, with terrorism. Not exactly sure where it's coming from or where to go from here. Well, my wife was particularly anxious, especially when thinking about our, our newborn child. 
And I remember this one day we were driving together. I was in the, the driver's seat. She was in the back next to the car seat taking care of our daughter. And she looked at me through the, the rearview mirror and we were having this conversation. And she said, Jared, are you worried at all about, about traveling? We're, we're flying and not just flying anywhere. We're going to New York. Are, are, are you okay with this? And I'm kind of happy-go-lucky. I don't think too hard about things that are negative. And so some would call that cluelessness, but I call it optimism. And I just said, oh, we'll be fine. And kept driving. And my wife wasn't having that. She's like, no, Jared, seriously. Uh, are we going to be okay? Are you nervous at all about this? And again, just trying to reassure her, I just said, honey, it'll be fine. Uh, the chances of anything happening are so slim. And she's like, yeah, I'm sure that's what they said before 9-11. So we're having this back and forth. And, and I just said to her, honey, we're sealed, okay? Uh, whatever happens, we go, we go crashing down and you're stuck with me, okay? There's no getting out of this relationship. We, we've, we've been sealed in the temple. And I was just trying to be lighthearted and, and reassuring, but she stared at me through the, that rearview mirror. I mean, with this gaze that it seemed like the edges were going to start melting down. And she just looked through me and said, do you really believe that? I mean, it was a gut check. No more, I mean, all joking aside, none of this kind of flippant pseudo reassurance. Do you mean that? And it was an interesting experience for me to really look inside and, and ask myself that. Do I really believe that or am I just trying to change the subject from something negative? But as I pondered that question and stared back through the rearview mirror at my wife, I said, yes, I really believe that. And it gives me comfort to see these kinds of promises, eternal life, celestial kingdom, come what may. No matter what happens with the dark storm clouds of war, there is a silver lining of celestial peace and glory. I just received a beautiful letter from one of you viewers and uh, an incredible woman that half a lifetime ago when she was 19 was in a, was in a horrible accident and has been paralyzed ever since. But to read her story and to feel the strength of her testimony as she says, so many things in her life have been stripped away from her, but not the ultimate source of comfort and peace. The reassurance that can only come from God through Jesus Christ as a gift by means of the Holy Ghost. I mean, as I, as I got to know this, this new friend better, I thought, wow, there is a name of the sanctified. There's someone who is preparing herself for the celestial world, where she will be raised on newly strengthened feet. That feet, feet in the meantime are so beautiful because they are publishing peace. They are saying that thy God reigneth. That's the reassurance God is trying to give these saints, these anxious disciples. The comforter is yours. Have faith in that. To reintroduce you to the source of that comfort, even Jesus, notice what he says in five and six which glory, speaking of the celestial kingdom, is that of the church of the firstborn, even of God, the holiest of all, through Jesus Christ, his son. And then describing Jesus, he that ascended up on high, as also he descended below all things, 
in that he comprehendeth all things, that he might be in all and through all things, the light of truth. You see how all-encompassing the Lord's understanding is? No wonder he can, he can comfort us so perfectly, so individually, because he understands it all. He comprehendeth all things. That was the gift that he, that he received from the atonement. We often think of the gift that he gives in Gethsemane, namely our own forgiveness, redemption. But for himself, what gift did he receive through those atoning agonies? Perfect empathy, complete comprehension of every one of us to be able to say, I'm in all and through all. I've been through it all for your sake. I descended below all things. So he'll see, he'll remind Joseph Smith of that when he's in Liberty Jail. I, I, so that I could be beneath you to bear you up. It's why I love the phrase hitting rock bottom, because rock is one of the titles of Jesus Christ. And if you have descended so low that you feel you've hit rock bottom, then hallelujah, you're finally back in contact with the rock that has always been beneath you to bear you up. And when he ascends up on high, it's the entire, the entire spectrum from lowest of the low to highest of the high, the condescension, come down with us. So there can be someday a con ascension, a, a rising with him. Even baptism has that symbolism, to be buried with Jesus, to go down. He came down with us so that we can rise again in newness of life. That is Christ, the light of the world in spite of days of darkness. As he said in 6 and now into 7, that's Christ, the light of truth, which truth shineth. I love that, that phrase. We think of truth as something that we know. But here it's something that we see. This truth shines. And it's not just that we see the truth, but because of that truth, we see everything else more clearly. It's like what C.S. Lewis said. I believe in Christianity the way I believe in the rising of the sun. Not just that I see it, but by it, I see everything else more clearly. That's exactly this truth that comes from Jesus Christ. This truth that shines. Here he calls it the light of Christ. And it does shine into dark places. It illuminates us. It opens the eyes of our understanding. But, but it's both light and truth. We'll see later in a couple of weeks, section 93, that that is intelligence. That is the glory of God. That is light and truth. So in verse 6, when he says it's the light of truth, it's this truth that shines. Remember back in section 8 when he said the Lord speaks to the mind and the heart? I sense both of those body parts in this as well. That light is something we see. It's, it's, it's whereby we can understand things. That seems to be a head kind of approach, a, a rational and understanding. But the heart, truth, is often something that we feel. And so to have that kind of approach to, to understanding, to feel the truths of God, that is the light of Christ. Keep going in verse 7. As also he is in the sun and the light of the sun and the power thereof by which it was made. As also he is in the moon and is the light of the moon and the power thereof by which it was made. And also the light of the stars and the power thereof by which they were made. And the earth also and the power thereof, even the earth upon which you stand. I mean, welcome to your astronomy lesson, okay? Uh, we're going to see later in this revelation that this is a temple text. 
as the saints are being pointed in the direction of building that house of God. And if you think about the temple and the endowment and finding your place in the universe, we, we think of celestial, terrestrial, and telestial. And here we're seeing the sun, the moon, the stars, and there is a lesson to be learned here. If in the temple we are, we are taught creation, fall, atonement, well, here we're getting our hints of creation. In fact, the way he describes it there, that this light of Christ, that is what powers the sun and the moon and the stars. People who have, well, skeptics throughout history, have often poked fun at the Genesis creation account because on day one, God says, let there be light. And yet people will say, wait a minute, it wasn't until day three that there's even a sun, moon, or stars to give off any light. So how can there be light when there's no sun to provide it? Well, just check your spelling. There is a sun to provide it, but it's S-O-N. It is Jesus Christ, and it's his light that fills the immensity of space. We'll see that phrase in just a moment. It's that light that gives the sun something to work with, a reason to shine. Christ is the source of that power. In some ways, in fact, when, the, when God says, let there be light, and that light is the light of Christ, he might as well have said, let there be Jesus. Why do you think John gives us that beautiful play on words as he begins his gospel with the same phrase that begins the creation account of Genesis 1? In the beginning. But in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. That Word is Jesus. Even in Genesis, when, and it says, And God spake when he said, Let there be light. The, the Word that, is, that comes forth is Jesus. Again, if God is the architect, but Christ is the general contractor, as far as creation is concerned, and God spake, oh, there goes his creative agent, there goes his word, there goes Christ. And let there be light, and there is the light of Christ to fill all the universe. And God spake, there's Jesus. Let there be light, there's Jesus. Christ is in all and through all. The light that shineth. This isn't astronomy. This is theology. And that the source and the core of it all is Jesus Christ. Verse 11, what does his light do? The light which shineth, which giveth you light, is through him who enlighteneth your eyes, which is the same light that quickeneth your understandings. That's the light that makes everything else more clear. Verse 12, this light proceedeth forth from the presence of God to fill the immensity of space, as I already noted. Verse 13, the light which is in all things, which giveth life to all things, which is the law by which all things are governed, even the power of God who sitteth upon his throne, who is in the bosom of eternity, who is in the midst of all things. What a list of synonyms. Remember we saw that verse in section 84 with all those beautiful synonyms of when you hit your tuning fork and, and the homing beacon and other people is drawing them back to God. And it was a list like word and truth and spirit and light. Well, here we see a similar list in verse 13. Light and life. Remember Jesus said that when he descended among the darkness and death of, of, among the Nephites? I am the light and life of the world. The two things you've been missing most I mean, the chaos of war, uh, the dark smoke that spreads across the earth. Here's Christ, the light and the life, the law 
the power. So much war is a result of lawlessness or a source of lawlessness on the other end. It is often a massive struggle for power, earthly power. But here's the heavenly power of God on his throne in the bosom of eternity. I love that word because it makes it so much more personal than some kind of, I don't know, cold celestial mansion. It's coming home. It's, it's being brought into the embrace of loving parents in heaven. It's the bosom of eternity. That's why in the Bible it's sometimes referred to as the bosom of Abraham or Abraham's bosom, the father Abraham. And we get to come home to him. Or like that beautiful phrase from the visions of section 76, when Joseph sees the son alongside the father and speaks of the only begotten son whom the father loved and who was in the bosom of the father. You see an embrace between father and son. Well, here, what, what is the source and the aim of all of this light and life and law and power? It's the heavenly embrace from a father and mother that are there to welcome us into their bosom, the bosom of eternity. Now, verse 14, Verily I say unto you, that through the redemption which is made for you, we've gone from creation, we're all dealing with the fall, now let's speak of the atonement, through the redemption which is made for you, is brought to pass the resurrection from the dead. Remember, if war is going to be poured out upon all nations and result in the death and misery of many souls, then this reassurance of the resurrection, it'll all come through Jesus Christ. Verse 15, the spirit and the body are the soul of man. Now that's our best technical definition of soul. There will be some places in scripture where they speak of soul as, as if it were synonymous with spirit alone. So don't get those mixed up. Uh, don't mistake a general definition of soul for the more technical definition here that the soul is the combination of spirit and body, but the two of them together, inseparably, inseparably reunited, that's what resurrection is. Verse 16, the resurrection from the dead is the redemption of the soul. It redeems the body from death, but it redeems the spirit from its absence. We'll learn uh, this later in the Doctrine and Covenants, that when the spirit is separated from its body, it looks upon that that solitary existence as a bondage. I mean, too often in this life, people feel trapped in their body or by their body. But no, the real trap is not to have a body at all. Ask Lucifer about that one. Ask uh, those, who, those evil spirits that would take the, the gathering swine over no, no flesh at all. I can't be a full soul if I don't have a body. And so the redemption of the soul comes through the resurrection of the dead. Again, to think of this new friend of mine who could very easily feel trapped by her body, but instead to recognize that, that having a body at all is part of the gift of God, and it is a gift that he will renew and restore to each one of us. The resurrection from the dead, that is the redemption of the soul. Verse 17, the redemption of the soul is through him that quickeneth all things. Remember, quicken doesn't mean to make fast. It means to make alive. He makes alive all things. In whose bosom, there it is again, this intimate, this personal, this loving embrace. In whose bosom it is decreed that the poor and the meek of the earth shall inherit it. 
That's such a beautiful reassurance. I, I, I joke sometimes that in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus is giving the Beatitudes, and he says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And the irony of that is based on how the world views the future of the world. Uh, even, even religious people, as they think about the second coming and the destruction of, of the wicked, and, and the earth will be consumed by fire so that we can go off away to some, some ethereal heaven out there. Uh, and to me, I think, wow, you know, that guy, I don't know if I want to be meek then. If the meek shall inherit the earth, and it's like some orbiting charcoal briquette when all is said and done, I don't want it. I mean, no wonder it's only the meek that will inherit it. They're the ones that are meek enough not to complain. They're all, oh, <laughs> no, it's, it's, I, I like black. Uh, it, it's really nice. <laughs> that is not the reality here. The earth will be renewed. It will receive its paradisical glory. It will become the celestial kingdom. Only we believe that. And so when the, the meek shall inherit the earth, oh, that's good news. And, and hear that same reminder and reassurance. And I love that the Lord is, is making special mention of the poor and of the meek, the marginalized, the ones that so easily go forgotten in this life, are never forgotten by the one who's, who has their names written, engraved in the palms of his hands, that we want to be brought into his bosom. This is his promise. It, all of this, the redemption is through him. You have God's word on that because Jesus is the word of God. In verse 18, therefore it, the earth, needs be sanctified from all unrighteousness, that it may be prepared for the celestial glory. I mean, it goes back to that, not wanting to stick the meek with this, this burned out shell of a planet. No, it must be sanctified from all unrighteousness, this this purging, cleansing fire. Now it's prepared for its celestial glory. How did it get there? Verse 19, after it hath filled the measure of its creation, it shall be crowned with glory, even with the presence of God the Father. And if that's what it takes for the earth to get to that point, then that's what it takes for its inhabitants to get to that point as well. The phrase, to fill the measure of its creation. What were we created for? If you go back to Genesis, it's to multiply and replenish the earth. If you go back to Abraham, it's to prove ourselves here upon this earth, to prepare ourselves to, to meet God and to be not just with him, but to be like him. What, what, are, what are we created for? And are we living up to that? Only then are we crowned with glory. Only then do we receive the presence of God the Father. Verse 20 that bodies who are of the celestial kingdom may possess it, possess the earth, this celestialized, sanctified earth, may possess it forever and ever. For, for this intent was it made and created, and for this intent are they sanctified. So a sanctified place for a sanctified people. On the other hand, verse 21, they who are not sanctified, and how do we do it? Through the law which I have given unto you, even the law of Christ, must inherit another kingdom, even that of a terrestrial kingdom or that of a telestial kingdom. Now, we might think of that as harsh. I mean, after all, the word law shows up in verse 21, and that's a scary word. Oh, the law. Well, we'll see just what a glorious word that is later on in this revelation. But based on this law, if you, have not, if you don't match the place where, where you're living, then you can't live there. If you're not living up to the measure of your creation, then how can you be upon an earth that has lived up to the measure of its? 
if you're not sanctified by celestial law, then how can you be prepared to endure celestial glory? That's what he gets out in the next few verses. Verse 22, For he who is not able to abide the law of a celestial kingdom cannot abide a celestial glory. And he who cannot abide the law of a terrestrial kingdom cannot abide a terrestrial glory. And, 24, he who cannot abide the law of a telestial kingdom cannot abide a telestial glory. Therefore, he is not meet for a kingdom of glory. Therefore, he must abide a kingdom which is not a kingdom of glory. And that would be outer darkness. There's the sons of perdition. In just a handful of verses, we've had kind of encapsulated some of the things that, that Joseph and Sidney and the saints learned from the visions of section 76. But what I love about this one, this passage, is that it connects glory with law. That there's something about law that prepares us for glory. We're living at a, at a higher level. We're, li we're living a higher standard, which prepares us to live in a higher degree of God's glory. I mean, in some ways, it's like the, the Malachi measure. That God will open the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing so great that you can't receive it? There's not room enough for it? Well, do you have the, the broad enough shoulders and strong enough muscles to be able to carry what, this weight of glory that God is trying to pour out upon you? And if your muscles aren't strong enough, if your shoulders aren't broad enough, then we can't... That eternal weight of glory would end up crushing us. And how do we get into shape? It's by living the law. Now, this is not to say that, that obedience to law is what earns us heaven. That, that this is not works righteousness. That this is not paying God back for his atonement. It's none of those things. It's not earning heaven. It's learning heaven, as Brad Wilcox has beautifully taught us. The point is simply preparation. Are you able to abide celestial glory? Because the one thing that helps prepare you for it, you've come, you've come close enough to Christ by by having faith in Him, accepting His grace, keeping His commandments, because He's trying, he's trying to whip us into shape, because he has, he has something He wants to give us that can't be received if we're not prepared to receive it. Now, verse 25, we go back to the earth, and it's parallel to its inhabitants. Again, verily I say unto you, the earth abideth the law of a celestial kingdom. For it filleth the measure of its creation, and transgresseth not the law. The Lord is asking the same of us who, who hope to inherit that kingdom. Fulfill the measure of your creation. Don't transgress the law. Abide the law of a celestial kingdom, and it will prepare you to be able to receive a celestial glory. Verse 26, Wherefore it shall be sanctified, yea, notwithstanding it shall die, it shall be quickened again, and shall abide the power by which it is quickened, and the righteous shall inherit it. Now there again we see the parallel process. Just like the earth dies and is quickened again, human beings will die and be quickened again. There's resurrection, there's redemption through Jesus Christ. But what I love about 26 is that phrase in the middle, it shall be quickened again and shall abide the power by which it is quickened. Hmm, think about that. It will abide the power by which it is quickened. It's interesting to see when you, I mean, we're all experts at recharging things these days, right? That is your, your phone, for example, is beginning to die and you just have to recharge it. Well, imagine having a charger that is too powerful for the thing that it is recharging. 
Okay, I, I don't I don't have an electric car. Okay, but I imagine that's some serious uh, energy going through. And if you were to hook your cell phone up to what you're charging your car with, I don't think your phone would be able to handle it. Okay, and that seems to be the suggestion there in verse 26. Can you abide the power that quickens you? Again, if we see telestial law and telestial glory, there must be some kind of telestial power that quickens you. Okay? Same with terrestrial level, same with celestial level. And, and it's, it's like, how big is the hose that's filling it up? Okay? How, how strong is the cord th through which this power flows? I mean, if you've ever seen, used a, a surge protector, just in case too much power, too much electricity comes through the cord, and you don't want to fry your computer or whatever you're plugged into. If you can't handle celestial glory, if you can't abide the power by which you would be quickened, made alive, resurrected, then there's, there has to be a lower, uh, a lesser power source for you. You'll still be quickened, you'll still be made alive, but it'll be according to the level that you were able to, to handle. And what prepares you for higher levels? Higher laws. It's the law that prepares us to be able to be quickened by a power source beyond us. I mean, athletes live a certain law of exercise that most of the rest of us just don't. And it prepares them to handle, their body can handle the kinds of things that those star athletes can, can perform. We are trying, I mean, it's amazing this passage. We are trying to prepare ourselves for the resurrection. And what kind of a recharging plug will you be able to handle? In verse 27, notwithstanding they die, there we've been discharged, right? We've, the, the battery is out. They also shall rise again a spiritual body. There's the recharging. But how much charge can we handle? Verse 28, they who are of a celestial spirit shall receive the same body which was a natural body. Even ye shall receive your bodies, and your glory shall be that glory by which your bodies are quickened. That's an interesting insight. That resurrection and redemption go hand in hand. We saw that earlier. That, well, resurrection and judgment go hand in hand as well. It's not two separate things, like you get resurrected and you're still waiting, like, okay, but which, which kingdom am I going to go to? No, you're, if you're going to the celestial kingdom, you are resurrected to a celestial body. And it's interesting to think that Bodies are perfect, right? Uh, there's not a hair of your head has been lost in the resurrection. But there's still a degree of glory, a degree of light. You can have a perfect 40-watt bulb or a perfect 60-watt bulb or a perfect 100-watt bulb. Uh, it's just a matter of how much do they shine. And so to see that you receive the body and your glory shall be that glory by which your bodies are quickened, I mean, he explains it beyond in verse 29 and 30 and 31. Ye who are quickened by a portion of the celestial glory shall then receive of the same, even a fullness. They who are quickened by a portion of the terrestrial glory shall then receive of the same, even a fullness. Also, they who are quickened by a portion of the telestial glory shall then receive of the same, even a fullness. And 32, even those, the, the, the fourth group that we don't like to mention so often, those sons of perdition, even they who remain after celestial, terrestrial, and telestial uh, resurrections, even they who remain shall also be quickened, made alive, resurrected also. Nevertheless, they shall return again to their own place, which is devoid of glory. That's why it's called outer darkness. There is no light, no starlight, no moonlight, no sunlight. And then the end of 32 is so powerful. 
to enjoy that which they are willing to receive because they were not willing to enjoy that which they might have received. We talked about that a bit in previous lessons also. I, I'm giving you as much as you can handle. I'm, I'm not condemning you by giving you less. I'm exalting you with as much as you're able and willing to receive. The bottleneck is you, my sons and daughters, not me. My desire was to give you all things, but you were not prepared to receive them. So I gave you as much as you could handle. In fact, I gave you as much as you were willing to enjoy. You see, there's something about a celestial life that we need to, well, I'll speak personally here. I'm not much of a runner, never have been. I, I was an athlete in a previous life, uh, but running was always a means to a greater end. Like I got to get to the end zone. Football was my first love. Now, I did track, but even that was to just stay in shape for football. And even that was, well, can I put some hurdles in the way or can I do some jumps instead? Just running by itself, that's too painful. Uh, those runners out there, my, my hat's off to you. What's amazing to me is when people come to love running. And I'm definitely not there yet, okay? Well, do we, have we come to love serving? I think it was Mary G. Romney. Uh, I could be wrong on this quote, just popped into my head. Uh, that service is not something we endure in this life to be able to kind of get past it and earn our way to heaven. It's like, no, celestial kingdom, the very nature of a celestial life is one of service. And when you come to learn to love it, oh yeah, that's when I want to extend that eternally. It was like my mission. At the beginning, it was hard. But once I got used to this, this life of selflessness and sacrifice, you want to find your life, then lose it, Jesus said. And once I lost myself in missionary service, I never wanted it to end. And here I am 25 years later, still a missionary of sorts, loving the opportunity to teach and share the gospel. Well, what are you willing to receive? Or better said in 32, what are you willing to enjoy? Would you enjoy celestial glory? It's not a day on the chain gang, like, oh, I got to go serve again. That's why I love when God says, behold, this is my work and my glory. Yeah, it's work, but it's not, it's not tedious. It's not like he's up there like, oh man, I got to go back to work. Got to put in another nine to five, bringing to pass immortality, eternal life. <laughs> no, it's my glory. It's what I love to do. It's who I am, not just what I do. And the celestial law is what changes our nature into make us into someone like the Father, like the Son, someone who, who desires to be a blessing to all people. No wonder you're prepared to receive all that the Father hath. Because it's not just about all the stuff, it's about all the, the desire. That's what he has. God has work and God has glory. And when we desire to share in that work and that glory, then we are willing to enjoy that which he wants to give us. It's taking over the family business. Not, not taking over. Okay, we're, we're not trying to usurp God's authority. He will always be our God, always above and beyond us. He wants us to share in the family business though. And so as we strive to serve in the family business now, gathering Israel, helping our brothers and sisters home, becoming a true disciple of Jesus Christ, that's what, in fact, that's what's quickening me now. It's what makes me feel alive, is to live a, a celestial life. Now I'm far from perfect at it. But there are those moments where 
it is celestial and it is quickening. Remember the oath and covenant of the priesthood that it, you're sanctified by the Spirit as you're magnifying these callings. It, it renews your body. Maybe that's even a preview of coming attractions. As, as your body is renewed, it's quickened in its own way as you're out magnifying God's callings for you. And man, it is enlivening. And I think of that on, on the major scale then. If that's preview of coming attractions, well, here's the attraction. The resurrection of the dead. And if it's wicked things that make you feel alive, then telestial glory. You will be quickened, made alive by that level of light. If it's honorable things, there's nothing wrong about it, but nothing particularly right about it either. If that's what makes you feel alive, it's not self-destructive behavior, but it is self-serving behavior. Then terrestrial glory. That's what makes you feel alive now. It's what will make you alive then. But if what makes you feel alive in this life is filling the measure of your creation, it's like I found my purpose. This is what I'm supposed to be doing here. And, and it involves reaching out and lifting up and helping people, giving glory to God and to others. First great commandment, second great commandment. If that's the celestial life I'm living now, then that celestial law that I'm complying with, that celestial lifestyle that I'm living, it is preparing me for a celestial glory that will quicken me. It's a recharge that I'll be able to handle because I've been improving my, my power intake throughout my entire life. To me, it's one more evidence of the goodness and generosity of God. What you're willing to receive is based on what you're willing to enjoy. I'm just trying to educate your desires to, to mature your taste buds so that the things that are best for you really are the things that you most enjoy. I see it in my parents when they go to serve in the temple. And in so many other temple workers, it's just, that's where I want to be. Well, Celestial Kingdom is where they want to be. And believe me, they will be very comfortable there. I hope that's the truth for all of us. Because that is what God is trying to give us. Verse 33, For what doth it profit a man if a gift is bestowed upon him and he receive not the gift? Behold, he rejoices not in that which is given unto him, neither rejoices in him who is the giver of the gift. See what he's saying there? What's the point of gift giving if there's no gift receiving? You're not willing to enjoy it. You're not willing to receive it. What? Why was I trying to offer it to you, force it upon you in the first place? Remember that beautiful hymn. Know this, that every soul is free to choose his life and what he'll be. For this eternal truth is given, that God will force no man to heaven. He's not going to force feed you the fruit from the tree of life. It has to be something that you want, that your taste buds have, have been developed to enjoy. That's what the gift is for. And like he said at the end of verse 33, what, what's, what's truly receiving the gift? It's rejoicing in two things. You see the words here? Are you willing to enjoy it? Are you willing to rejoice in this? How great shall be your joy with him in the kingdom of your father? Again, this is not life on the chain gang. Okay, This is not like some boring eternal existence among all these goody goodies. <laughs> no, this is eternal felicity. That was the word used back in section 77. But here in 33, you're rejoicing in the gift 
And you're also rejoicing in the giver. And that, how could we, how could we not? This is the bosom of eternity. This is him welcoming us into his embrace. Can we rejoice in him? It's the beautiful thing about receiving any gift from God. It has divine fingerprints all over it. And you can see the giver behind every gift. I hope we can rejoice in both. But what prepares us for all that rejoicing, ironic as it might sound, is law. Again, am I, am I working out to the point that I, that I can handle the kinds of things I'm asking my body to do? Have I strengthened my muscles to receive this eternal weight of glory? There, there, there is law here. We saw that way back in verse 21. It's the law that sanctifies you. It's the law, if you abide in it, that prepares you for the glory I'm trying to pour out upon you. And this idea of law will carry us through the next several verses. Notice 34. Again, verily I say unto you, that which is governed by law is also preserved by law and perfected and sanctified by the same. Now, if you were to put two columns down and say, which of these things that law does do you like and which ones do you not like? Well, I think you'd have a pretty good list. Governed by law is the one that we sometimes chafe against. It's like, ah, I hate following these rules. These laws are governing me. They're, they're telling me what to do. Well, you can't divorce that from the other list. Because what's in the other column? What else does law do? Yes, it governs you. But it also preserves you, perfects you, and sanctifies you. Do you want it to do those things too? Then you have to let it govern you. And this is your coach trying to get you up, it gets you in shape or get you up to speed. And if you want to be able to have these, the, the amazing side of things, preservation and perfection and sanctification, then you have to let the law govern you. Because the flip side, verse 35, that which breaketh a law, I won't let it govern me, and abideth not by the law, but seeketh to become a law unto itself. And you see the order there? You start by breaking law. Next, you abide not by law. Now we've gone from law-breaking to lawlessness. And then how does it end? You seek to become a law unto yourself, which is an interesting irony. It's like, no, I don't want to follow that rule, but I do want everyone to follow mine. That I now have my own law. And rather than me being created in the image of God, I've created God after my own image. This is how I, I, I'm going to do things. This is total moral relativism in our day. No wonder the next phrase, they willeth to abide in sin. It's what they want. It's what they'll enjoy. And altogether abideth in sin. It's, it's, this is the opposite of the light growing brighter and brighter unto the perfect day. This is, this is the darkness growing darker and darker. They will to abide in sin. They altogether abide in sin. And if that's the case for you, how does 35 end? You cannot be sanctified by law. And for that matter, you can't even be sanctified by mercy or justice or judgment. Therefore, they must remain filthy still. Of course, they have to remain filthy. They wouldn't abide the cleansing process. And it's law that governs it. It's law that perfects and preserves and sanctifies. Okay? It's, it's Christ's perfect obedience to law that allowed him to extend mercy to us. To, that allows him to cleanse us from our sins so that we do not remain filthy still. I mean, this is an important thing to grapple with, that we are saved as much by Christ's justice as we are by his mercy. In fact, it's his justice that allows him, as that second comforter, to offer us the promise of eternal life 
because we have repented. We have, we have followed, we have come unto him. We have been willing to receive and enjoy what he is offering us. And since he already paid that debt to justice through his perfect atonement, then it would not be just of God not to forgive us based on what the Savior did in our behalf. I mean, this is, this is something we have to wrap our brains around. Saved by God's justice as much as by God's mercy. It would be unmerciful not to save us. Well, sure, but it would be unjust of him not to save us. When Christ comply, complied with the law perfectly, suffered for our sins, paid that debt, and then brought us unto him through law, which preserves and protects and sanctifies. I hope this is making sense. I think too often we grow up and think of the law as our enemy and justice as something that only condemns. And oh, I only want mercy. No, it's both justice and mercy. It's the ultimate proving of contraries. That's what that brings us home. In fact, notice the next few verses. These are incredible. Verse 36. In fact, before you even read these, I want you to go back with me uh, several decades and picture a very young doctor, medical school student, if you will, named Russell M. Nelson. He's an aspiring cardiologist, but cardiology in his day hasn't come very far. They, at, 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 his, at that time period, this, the thought was still, you can't, you can't operate on the heart because the moment you touch it, it will stop beating. Uh, it's... The heart is not something we can fix. Well, turn with me to the Doctrine and Covenants, Dr. Nelson. And as a young doctor, he reads the following verses, and they inspire him in his quest to discover just how we can work on the human heart. Now, I don't know if there's a footnote in some medical journal somewhere that gives credit to the Doctrine and Covenants for the, the miracle of, of heart surgery. But the Lord does deserve credit. And, and here's where the verses come in. Verse 36, all kingdoms have a law given. Now, he's going to use an interesting definition for kingdoms. Okay? 37 explains it. There are many kingdoms, for there is no space in the which there is no kingdom, and there is no kingdom in which there is no space, either a greater or a lesser kingdom. Now, what? What he's getting at here, I believe, is just he's calling everything a kingdom. Every little piece of reality. Call it a kingdom, if you will. We're not talking the kingdom of England or France. Now we're talking the kingdom of the human heart, if that's what you're interested in, Dr. Nelson. Or the kingdom of aviation, if that's what you are really fascinated by, uh, Dieter F. Uchtdorf. Whatever aspect of life, of reality that you're involved in, it's a kingdom of sorts, right? There's certain jargon that goes along with it. There's certain education that prepares you for it. There's certain rules to play by. Every sport is its own kingdom. And in the kingdom of soccer, you're not allowed to use your hands. But in the kingdom of football, you are. You understand what, I, what I'm trying to, to get at here? Everything is its own kingdom. And then verse 38, And unto every kingdom is given a law. And unto every law there are certain bounds also and conditions. And then 39 is the clincher. All beings who abide not in those conditions are not justified. Now, in the original context of this, we're talking celestial, terrestrial, and telestial, right? And each of those kingdoms, that's why he uses the word here, has its own law given. And if you can't abide those laws, those conditions, then, then you're not justified. In other words, you, you can't handle being there. That's not the sport you're playing. 
So I need to find some other kingdom whose laws I will abide. I need to find a sport where I can stay inside the bounds and play according to its conditions. Now this is what struck a young Dr. Russell M. Nelson. As he read those verses, he thought, the human heart must be a kingdom of sorts. And, and every kingdom has law given. And as long as we stay within its bounds, as long as we keep the laws of the kingdom, then the kingdom itself has to abide by its own laws also. So perhaps what's going wrong with all of these heart surgeries that we're trying and failing in is that we haven't figured out the laws that govern the kingdom of the human heart. As soon as we do, then the heart has to keep its own law. You see, if you go in for heart surgery, you're not banking on the doctor's mercy. You're banking on the doctor's justice, their know-how, their expertise, the laws of the human heart. That if you change this or if you do this, then the heart will, will change and, and function in a different way. That you can stop it and then put yourself on a heart-lung machine, you know, and then you can restart the heart. Wait, what? How on earth can you do that? Well, that's what they were trying to figure out. And if they could figure it out, if they could come to understand the laws that govern, the bounds and conditions in which the heart operates, then they can operate on the heart. They just have to keep the same rules that the heart does. You could do the same thing with Elder Uchtdorf if we shift from the heart to the plane. And if you think about, can you imagine getting on a plane to go on some trip? And the pilot gets on the loudspeaker and says, oh, I'm so glad you're all here. I really hope this works. Uh, we're going to be going up 30,000 feet into the air in this long, skinny metal tube that weighs much more than the air that's around it. But that air somehow will keep us all up. And I'm crossing my fingers up here in the cockpit. Uh, and I've got a really kind and, and generous and faithful co-pilot who's going to be praying every, every mile of the way. Uh, we really think that, that this will work. And through God's mercy, I think we'll stay afloat. I am, I'm not buckling up. I'm getting out of this thing. There's, I don't fly because of mercy. I fly because of justice. I don't fly because of the kindness of the, of the pilot. I fly because of the laws of physics that keep this shiny metal tube afloat in the air. There's things about lift and, and the aerodynamics and, and thrust and all of these things that it's guaranteed. As long as the aircraft is functioning according to those laws of aerodynamics, then it has to stay afloat. And there would only ever be a crash if there's some breaking of a law of physics, some malfunction or some human error. Same with heart surgery. You understand? I'm, I'm trying to elevate law in our minds because that's what the Lord is doing here. Don't, don't chafe when a law is trying to govern you. Recognize it's trying to preserve and perfect and sanctify you. I'm preserved 30,000 feet above uh, the ground because of law. And a plane and a pilot that keeps within the bounds and conditions of that law. When someone goes into surgery, it is the law of the body. Uh, it is the bounds and conditions of the kingdom of the heart or the lungs or the whatever it might be that keeps them alive. It perfects them. It preserves them. And if we could understand that about God's law, 
trying to prepare us to to live within the bounds and conditions of the celestial kingdom. I want to live those laws. They're preparing me for celestial glory. In fact, I was struck by a talk years ago by Elaine S. Dalton, amazing uh, president of the Young Women's Program. When she was young and got married, uh, her sealer was a young apostle named Gordon B. Hinckley. And in that temple ceiling, President Hinckley said to her and to her, her husband, you have to learn to live, to keep the commandments, so that you can bank on immediate blessings based on God's justice, not just on God's mercy. Now that's an eye-opener. I'm afraid that most of the blessings that God gives to me are based on God's mercy. Like, Jared, you don't deserve this at all. Uh, it might give you a little shock because there's a little too much power flowing into your measly little charger. Uh, but try to get up to speed, okay? I've got, I've got bigger and better things prepared for you. But to, be, to receive a blessing based on God's justice... Again, I'm not saying that we get to command. We don't bind God, right? I, the Lord, am bound when you do what I say, but it's you that needs to bind yourself to me according to the covenant. Okay, don't forget what we learned in section 82. But for God to be able to grant you glorious blessings without having to plug his nose, without having him to go, I know you don't deserve this, but I, I'm nice and, and you need it. I'll give you another chance. But rather, you are worthy of this blessing. So ask in confidence. Pray in faith. You are abiding by the bounds and conditions of a kingdom of glory. And you deserve, I don't know if I can use, the other, use that word, but you are willing to receive. You are willing to enjoy. So ask in confidence. I can give in confidence too. There, there's, there's no pride cycle here. You've, you've overcome it. You see the beauty of that? I love these principles. Now, verse 40, he's starting to shift gears a little bit. We're going to get into some really deep doctrine. Well, we've been in deep uh, all along, but we're, we've been talking about law. We've been talking about law governing you. That might be the hard part, but it's that same law that perfects and sanctifies, right? We've talked about abiding by that law so that you can abide by the glory that is meant to quicken you. We're going to start, we're, it's like the same level here, okay? That celestial law prepares you for celestial glory. Terrestrial law is what allows you to receive terrestrial glory. It's like and like. And that's what he gets at in verse 40. In fact, there's a beautiful story behind verse 40. Uh, Elder L. Alden Porter was a member of the 70 years ago. And he once shared this experience. He was on his mission as a young elder, and Elder Bruce R. McConkie was uh, coming to tour his mission. And he got to be his chauffeur. He was driving him around the mission, and he and his companion were, I mean, I've got an apostle in the back seat. I want to ask him stuff. And he asked him, how do, I mean, we're nearing the end of our missions. How do we know who to marry? And without even having to think twice, Elder McConkie basically laughed and said, oh, that's easy. It says it in the Doctrine and Covenants. And they're like, what? what? What, her name's in the Doctrine and Covenants? Uh, not quite. But the answer to your question is, it's in section 88, verse 40. And so they flew through their scriptures to get to this verse, hoping it would answer their question, how do I know who to marry? Well, they read it and were still a little confused until Elder McConkie began to explain it. But read the verse. For intelligence cleaveth unto intelligence. Wisdom receiveth wisdom. Truth embraceth truth. Virtue loveth virtue, light cleaveth unto light, 
Mercy hath compassion on mercy, and claimeth her own. Justice continueth its course, and claimeth its own. Judgment goeth before the face of him who sitteth upon the throne, and governeth, and executeth all things. Now the end of that verse, we're getting back to Jesus, and we'll see him continue on in verse 41. But notice how it all began. You see, often in relationships, we say that opposites attract. And I suppose when it comes to social kinds of things, that, that can be very true. My wife is way more fun than I am, for example. Uh, and she's grateful for my order to kind of keep things going. And I'm grateful for her fun to actually make, make people enjoy the experience. On, on road trips, it's my job to get us there. And it's my wife's job to make sure people enjoy the journey. Okay? It's, a, it's a great combination. So again, in, in social things, in a lot of aspects, opposites do attract. But in spiritual things, I don't think so. In fact, it's spiritual opposites that seem to have the hardest time. Uh, there's a lot of friction there because spiritual, I mean, it's, it's the way you view reality itself. It's also who you're trying to become. And what I love about verse 40 is it's, it's not opposites attract. It's that like finds like. Intelligence to intelligence, wisdom to wisdom, truth. In fact, I love the, if you look at all these, these nouns are beautiful. Intelligence, wisdom, truth, virtue, light mercy, justice, but notice all of the verbs. They're relationship verbs. To cleave, to receive, to embrace, to love. No wonder Elder McConkie found marriage there, okay? But I think one of the points the Lord is making is you're never going to find those marriage verbs if you don't find those or develop those marriage nouns to begin with. In fact, I remember this verse as when I first met my wife. And I didn't know anyone with more intelligence and wisdom and truth and virtue and light than she had. And that verse woke me up and realized that the only way I would ever be able to have these marriage verbs with her was to develop those marriage nouns to match her. That my intelligence would cleave unto her intelligence. That if I gained enough spiritual wisdom, it, her spiritual wisdom would attract it. it. It goes back to what we saw in section 84 about the tuning fork. That truth, which truth shineth. And that once, it, if it's out filling the immensity of space and I respond to it, if I'm tuned to the same frequency then I reverberate with truth, and I seek it, I receive it, I cleave unto it, I embrace it. In fact, in my wedding ring, and my wife and I have the same type. There's only two like them on earth. Uh, we designed it together, infused with as much symbolism as, as we could uh, envision. Uh, and I drafted it all out, and then we shrunk it down, and, and I sent it to my wife's uncle is a jeweler and send it to him, and he's like, wow, this is way too complicated for me to handle, but I, I know a guy that does some detail work. I'll see if he can pull it off. And there are two rings like it on earth, one on my finger and one on my wife's. The outside is filled with this symbolism uh, that I won't go into detail on now, but on the inside, where no, no one's there to see it, is engraved, etched a phrase from section 88, verse 40. Light cleaveth unto light. My only hope to be one with her eternally, and for the two of us to be one with God, is for us to, to grow brighter and brighter unto the perfect day. 
It's to develop that light. It's to live into the light of Christ. It's to come unto him and become more like him so that we can cleave to one another and together cleave to him. That's what I'm trying to develop because I'm trying to catch up to my wife. I joke with my wife that sometimes I feel like I'm almost there. I'm almost, I just slow down a little bit. I can almost catch you. And I realize, oh, it's not that I've almost caught up. It's that she's lapped me again and she just passed me. It's like, oh, on your right. <laughs> like, come on, honey. Keep working on your intelligence and wisdom and truth and virtue. Keep working on light because my light will cleave to yours. We're both trying to cleave to the light of Christ. It does all come from him after all. That's what he's getting at at the end, right? Mercy hath compassion on mercy. Justice claimeth its course. Judgment goeth before the face of him who sitteth upon the throne and governeth and executeth. Oh, governeth. Isn't that the word we saw with law? That, govern, that law governs us? Well, God is the embodiment of the law. Christ fulfilled the law to perfection. No wonder, verse 41, he comprehendeth all things. All things are before him. All things are round about him. He is above all things, in all things, through all things, round about all things. And all things are by him and of him, even God, forever and ever. Now, recentering ourselves in the Savior, lest we think of just some kind of, I don't know, cold calculating law out there. It, no, it's God is law just like God is love. And so to see him at the center, now let's continue talking about that law, now that it's personified in him. 42, again, verily I say unto you, he hath given a law unto all things by which they move in their times and their seasons. Their courses are fixed, even the courses of the heavens and the earth, which comprehend the earth and all the planets. Now we're returning a bit to our astronomy lesson. But remember, it's a theology lesson through and through. But astronomy lessons do make for good theology lessons. Ask Abraham in Abraham chapter 3. Here is, he's basically saying, look at the universe around you. Look at the planets as they move. Look at the fixed courses. I mean, on that kind of a scale, it's incredible that the universe works. And how does it do it? It follows law. I mean, Isaac Newton was spent a lifetime trying to make sense of the laws of the universe. Copernicus, Galileo, Einstein. So many amazing scientists have been working on that. How does it all work? What it comes down to is that there are laws that the universe follows. Laws of physics, which we could say are laws of God. He's the one that gave a law to all things. He's the one that fixed these courses. He's in all and through all. And those kinds of laws function from the largest scale, uh, universe itself, down to the tiniest microorganism. Every kingdom has a law given, right? Bounds and conditions. In 44, they give light, speaking of these heavenly uh, bodies, they give light to each other in their times and in their seasons, in their minutes, in their hours, in their days, in their weeks, in their months, in their years. All these are one year with God, but not with man. See from big picture? years and months, down to, to tiny detail, hours and minutes. The universe itself functions according to God's law. But what about your little piece of the universe? Your, your kingdom, the kingdom of Jared Halverson, the kingdom of each one of you. Are, are we living, are we allowing law to govern us so that law can, can preserve and perfect and sanctify us?
I mean, that's exactly what God tries to do with Job. Job is confused about his little kingdom. And he thinks that God is not keeping in God's own law. It's like, hey, I'm the good guy. I'm not supposed to be suffering like some kind of a sinner out there. What is going on? And rather than answer, and rather than explain himself, which God never ends up doing, even at the end of Job when he gets all of his stuff back, the one thing God never gives him is an explanation of what he went through. But near the end of the book, what, how does God finally respond to Job? He asks him dozens and dozens and dozens of questions, all about creation. He asks about the planets and how they move. He asks about, oh, who taught the birds to fly? Where, you know where, the, where I keep the snow in the off-season? I mean, it's an incredible astronomy lesson and geology lesson and biology lesson. It, and Job doesn't have answers to any of it. That's the irony. By the end, he just waves his white flag and says, um, I can't answer any of those questions. And that was the point. God basically says to him, I know you can't, but guess what? I can. So here's the point I'm trying to make for you, Job. You don't understand how the universe works, but it does. Because I understand how it works. You don't understand how your little life works. You don't understand what's going on within those bounds and conditions of your own little kingdom. But I do. And just like the universe itself is working out according to my divine knowledge, my law, my power, so is your little life. What I'm trying to help you with is not to give you all the answers, it's to help you develop trust in me. Faith. That's what this boils down to. Do you trust me? And that's one of the great reassurances that nature should give us, that we should find in nature. That the world works. That when you see the regular motion of the planets and realize that maybe my life isn't as irregular as I assume. Maybe God has put me into an orbit exactly where I need to, to pass and intersect with other orbits and have the kinds of experiences that will prepare me for life with Him. Maybe God knows what He's doing after all. The universe after all does suggest an omnipotent and omniscient Creator. You see in verse oh, 45, the earth rolls upon her wings. The sun giveth his light by day and the moon giveth her light by night. The stars also give their light as they roll upon their wings in their glory in the midst of the power of God. Now again, it's theology, not astronomy that God is after. But he says in 46, unto what shall I liken these kingdoms that you may understand? I'm trying to help you to get this. I've got to come up with a good analogy. Well, let's keep going on this one with creation and the universe. 47, behold, all these are kingdoms. All these planets, the sun, moon, the stars, all of these are kingdoms. And any man who hath seen any or the least of these hath seen God moving in his majesty and power. That's so beautiful what the Lord is trying to do here. I'm trying to introduce you to me. And how do I do that? The Lord asks similar questions to Isaiah. It's like, what could you possibly, what's a good analogy you can use for me? And Isaiah comes up with some pretty incredible ones. Well, here's the Lord coming up with one himself. Let's just look at the universe. It's what I did with Job. And I hope you're seeing me behind all of these things. A God of order, a God of power, a God of love, a God of, of light, a God of law. That things are meant to make beautiful sense 
So come, let us reason together. Even if I don't give you all the reasons your life is the way that it is, it's part of a universe that functions according to law and that is governed by power and by light and by love. I remember when there was the, the total eclipse that passed across the United States uh, a few years ago. And I remember going out with all the, the I mean, forget about class, right? We're seeing something glorious. And so everybody was outside the Institute just looking down. We're not supposed to look at the sun, right? Uh, unless you had the special glasses. But I remember also you could look down at the ground and see shadows and see these tiny little slivers of uh, kind of these crescent lights as the sun was. It was an amazing thing. And I remember as I was experiencing that with all my all these students, feeling the reality of that verse, that I was seeing God moving in his majesty and power. A few lessons ago, I talked about my youngest daughter's experience out in the middle of nowhere and seeing why they call the Milky Way Milky and just the jaw dropping and being filled with a sense of awe that in her childlike way said made her stomach hurt. She was seeing God moving in his majesty and power. Now don't stop there. And this to me is the great blessing as well as the great tragedy of those who see nature as God and, and stop there. Now the beauty of that is that nature surrounds us all. And so all of us have access to God's handiwork. And that if we have eyes to see, we can see the, the artist behind the artwork. We can see the creator behind the creation. But that's the problem. We don't always have eyes to see. Or we only have eyes to see the gift and not the giver of the gift that's behind it. So in verse 48, when he says, I say unto you, he hath seen him, moving in his majesty and power, nevertheless, he who came unto his own was not comprehended. Ooh, there's a difference. It's one thing to see it, but not to get it? Mm, you're missing something. See, in 49, the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehendeth it not. And that's the problem. And so I do lament those who are so close because they see God in nature, but they stop there and think that nature is God instead of God's handiwork. It's like the story I've told you before of, of that student of mine that felt so lazy, she wasn't sure if she wanted to, to find a testimony or leave the church, but just felt too lazy to do either one. Just going to sit there and blah. Uh, and that was her self-description, okay? very brutally honest. But the fact she even was asking showed me, well, there's at least some desire there. And so we sat down together, and she's an outdoors woman, loves to run the river and loves to mountain bike. And so I was talking to her about mountain biking and asking her about how many gears were on her bike. And which one she starts with if she's going from zero on an uphill climb. And of course, it's the lowest possible gear. So I asked her, so what's your lowest spiritual gear? You see, if you, if you picture this gear shift and start to label all the different ways you might be able to feel the spirit, this light of Christ that fills the immensity of space, and then label your, your lowest gear. I asked her, what's the easiest, the, the, as lazy as you might feel, is there anything you can do that begins to give you at least a tiny hint of spiritual momentum? And as she pondered, she said, nature, which made sense for her. And I said to her, isn't it generous of God to surround you with your easiest gear? That's true of so many people. Just being out in nature and they begin to see God 
moving in his majesty and power. But do they understand anything about him? And so to me, it's a matter of leaning in, living into that bit of momentum, but then shifting up, getting to the next gear. Don't just be satisfied there and go, oh, okay, I'm in nature. That's good enough. No, try to, don't just see, try to understand. Upshift and build a little more momentum and then shift again and build a little bit more. And whether that goes from nature to, to starting to ponder what is around you, maybe that moves to gratitude, which might end up in prayer. And in that prayer and that pondering, coming to understand God a little bit more, seeing the fingerprints on the handiwork, looking for the artist's name hidden somewhere in the painting. Get out of the darkness. See the light, but try to comprehend the light. Someday we will. That's what he says at the end of verse 49. Nevertheless, the day shall come when you shall comprehend even God, being quickened in him and by him, Just like you come to understand the celestial glory because that's what's quickening you. I will receive a celestial inheritance because I'm being resurrected into a celestial body. I I come to understand God because he's the one that's, that's filling me with life, with his kind of life. Verse 50, then shall ye know that ye have seen me, that I am, that I am the true light that is in you, that ye are in me. Otherwise, ye could not abound. It's like someday you're going to get it. You're going to know that you've been seeing me all along. That as, as you've seen the universe before you, that as you've seen the, these kingdoms roll upon their wings in the glory and midst of the power of God, that you've seen me. You've seen me moving in my majesty and power. You won't just be in nature enjoying it. You will see that this was the classroom I set up to introduce you to the things of God. In fact, it's a, it's a mirror of me, and you'll begin to understand who I am. There is a beautiful poem called Aurora Lee by Elizabeth Barrett Browning. It, it has a phrase in it that's, that's the most famous part of this poem, but the entire poem is a masterpiece. These verses reminded me of it in terms of, you'll know that you've seen me once you, once you detect my fingerprints all over my creation. She wrote, Earth's crammed with heaven, and every common bush afire with God. But only he who sees takes off his shoes. You picture Moses there, he recognized there's something more than just this, this bush is ablaze. I'm on holy ground, I'll take my shoes off, I'll turn aside to see. And then the voice of God comes. And he recognizes, he doesn't just see, he comprehends. That's what God is after. And there again is the tragedy of those that prefer to live in darkness because the darkness comprehends it not. In fact, it was funny to read the entire, the entire poem and see what, what Elizabeth Barrett Browning says right on the heels of that. Only he who sees takes off his shoes. She then adds, the rest sit round it and pluck blackberries and daub their natural faces unaware more and more from the first similitude. The first similitude, that's creation. That's Adam and Eve. And seeing in one another and in themselves the image and likeness of God. That's the first similitude. Do I see him 
in myself? Do I see him in each of you? Do I see him in the world and the universe all around me? Because if I don't, I've missed something. In fact, I've missed the something, the source and the aim of all creation. In fact, the way Browning begins her poem, this is the part we never seem to read, she wrote, Truth so far in my book, the truth which draws through all things upwards, that a twofold world must go to a perfect cosmos. See what she's getting at? This twofold world, there's temporal and there's spiritual. It's all spiritual to God. It's meant to lift me upward, draw me to heaven. I'm supposed to see Christ in the cosmos. She said, natural things and spiritual. Who separates those two in art, in morals, or the social drift, tears up the bond of nature and brings death. Oh, that's powerful. If you separate nature from nature's God, if you see but do not comprehend, that's death instead of life. Browning said, whoever does that paints futile pictures, writes unreal verse, leads vulgar days, deals ignorantly with men, is wrong, in short, at all points. Now there is an inspired poet. What's all this for? It's to see God in the midst of his handiwork. And that handiwork is everywhere. We're going to see the Lord then teach a parable here, starting in verse 51. And it goes for about the next 10 or 11 verses, and it's a fascinating parable. We usually associate parables with the New Testament. Jesus taught them frequently. But there are a few scattered throughout the Doctrine and Covenants, and this one is deep. He's going to compare the universe to a field. And the Lord is going to visit different laborers in his field at different hours of the day. But don't forget the context. I mean, sometimes when we think of, oh, other sheep I have which are not of this fold. And you're just like, whoa, you see, it wasn't just an old world uh, savior. He was the savior of the new world as well. So there were other sheep. Well, then you get to those other sheep in 3 Nephi, and he says, oh, there's other sheep beyond this. Not just old world and new world, but lost tribes of the house of Israel. And they also deserve to hear my voice. I need to bring them too. So we're like, wow, okay, so not just Bible and Book of Mormon. There's a record of the lost tribes. Elder Maxwell said there would someday be a triad of truth. Nephi taught the same thing. And we'll get to swap scripture. It's going to be amazing. But that's still earthbound. And in the context of section 88, which is mind-blowingly vast in its scope, he's talking universe, he's talking sun, moon, stars, he's talking planets, he's talking uh, all of these things rolling upon their wings in the midst of the power of God. And if you've seen even the least one, you've seen God moving in his majesty and power. Now that's a large field, okay? It's universal. But as we saw in section 76, when Joseph has this vision of the Father and the Son, and remember what he says about the Savior? That by him and through him and of him, the worlds, plural, are present and were past created. And the inhabitants thereof, of all those worlds, past and present, being created, yet to be created, are begotten sons and daughters unto God. Remember that? Well, section 88, this little parable, is, is what depicts that. When Moses 1 says that worlds without number has God created, well, those worlds without number are what fill this field. 
in this parable. Verse 51, Behold, I will liken these kingdoms unto a man having a field. All these kingdoms throughout the universe. Here's the, the, the Savior's field. And he sent forth his servants into the field to dig in the field. Wherever there are sheep, including other sheep, or other other sheep, or other 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 sheep, there are always shepherds. The Lord always calls servants to dig, to dung, to plant, to nourish. Okay? Verse 52, he said unto the first, Go ye, and labor in the field. And in the first hour I will come unto you, and ye shall behold the joy of my countenance. Now think about how much we've talked about joy, eternal felicity, rejoicing in the gift and the giver. As the Lord of the field comes, he wants you to behold the joy of his countenance, how pleased he is with what he sees, how excited he is to be with you. We'll see in a moment that that joy is reciprocal. But he visits this first part of the field in the first hour. Then verse 53, he said unto the second, Go ye also into the field, and in the second hour I will visit you with the joy of my countenance. Same with the third, I'll visit you. Same with the fourth, and so on unto the twelfth. That's a number the Lord seems to like, as it, as it makes us think of the twelve tribes of Israel. Here's the whole house of Israel, the whole family of God, in worlds without number, inhabitants thereof, begotten sons and daughters unto God. All twelve. Uh, 56. The Lord of the field went unto the first in the first hour and tarried with him all that hour. And he was made glad with the light of the countenance of his Lord. That's the reciprocation I just mentioned. In 53, it's me visiting you with the joy of my countenance. I'm just, you can see the smile on my face. But 56, it's you'll be made glad with the light of the countenance of your Lord. How can you not respond to the Savior's smile with a smile of your own? He's happy to see you. Believe me, we'll be happy to see him. 57, then he withdrew from the first, that he might visit the second also, and the third, and the fourth, and so on, unto the twelfth. And thus they all received the light of the countenance of their Lord, every man in his hour, and in his time, and in his season, beginning at the first, and so on unto the last, and from the last unto the first, and from the first unto the last, every man in his own order, until his hour was finished, even according as his Lord had commanded him, that his Lord might be glorified in him, and he in his Lord, that they all might be glorified. There's that smile meeting smile, that light cleaving unto light, that truth embracing truth. And 61, that's my parable. Therefore unto this parable I will liken all these kingdoms and the inhabitants thereof. Every kingdom in its hour, and in its time, and in its season, even according to the decree which God hath made. Now that's a mind-blowing parable. This is evidence of the God of the universe. That the inhabitants of all of these worlds without number that God has created will have the privilege of rejoicing in the joy of Christ's countenance for a time as he visits them. Now, I, I don't know how all of this works. Some have wondered, wait a minute, so it, this, this is a universal salvation. It all comes through Jesus Christ. His light fills the immensity of space. His love and his law preserve and perfect and sanctify all things that will allow him to do that. And so for this good shepherd to spend time in every part of his fold, 
That's amazing. We think it was hard for, for Book of Mormon prophets to say that on a, on a different part of the world, in a, in a different continent, across the sea, the Savior will come. He will be born. He will live. He will atone for our sins. He will be crucified and rise the third day. And to have belief in that. I remember there were some skeptics in the Book of Mormon that said, oh, how convenient. You say he's going to come, but to some other part of the world? Oh, how convenient he's not coming here. You, there's no way to disprove this. Well, imagine some prophet on another planet, some other servant in a different part of the field, testifying similarly of a distant Savior that was sent to some other earth. Look at the stars above us. See God moving in his majesty and power and believe that he sent his son to one of those worlds to die for all of these worlds. That the very same truths and the very same powers is how it's put in the poetic version of section 76. The inhabitants thereof, the worlds which are and were created, saved through Jesus Christ. Now I could picture the skeptics throughout the universe saying something similar as what we heard from the Book of Mormon. Oh, how convenient that he's coming to some other world that we'll never have evidence of. Well, according to this parable, the evidence will come. Faith will precede the miracle, but they will receive a witness after the trial of their faith and that the Savior visits other sheep of folds that we can't even imagine. To me, I sometimes have to bite my tongue and, and silence my chuckle when well-meaning friends of other faiths tell me that, I'm be that I believe in the wrong Jesus. And to me, it's like, oh, the Jesus I believe in is so much bigger, so much grander and greater than even you could possibly imagine. Actually, now that I remember, Thomas Paine, who was the arch uh, infidel of his day, the age of reason, he shreds the Bible left and right. During his time period, science was catching up with astronomy to the point of realizing there really are worlds without number. And these Goldilocks zones throughout the universe as, as suns and solar systems most likely have planets that aren't too far to freeze or too near to fry. Uh, that there, There's probably inhabitable planets throughout the universe. Science today has no problem with that at all. It's just, what, just a matter of finding them, planets that can preserve or support life. But what's interesting in Thomas Paine's day, I mean, this is, what, 1794 when he writes The Age of Reason? He makes fun of the Bible throughout, but he uses science as his lever. They still do that to this day. But uh, as he, he describes worlds without number and thinks how myopic of a god of creation expecting some kind of salvation to take place on some puny little planet. You see, Paine believed in a, the God of nature. He believed in nature, uh, but he didn't understand uh, revealed religion and Christ's role in all of this. And so he makes a joke. Most of the Age of Reason is him just ridiculing revealed religion. But in this, in one passage, he, he describes the worlds without number and says, what, if Jesus had to go, and if there's an Adam and Eve on every planet, if there's a Jesus that has to go, uh, go to every planet and die there, he, he makes fun of it and just says, he'd be dying so frequently, he wouldn't have any time to live in between. Well, you're close, Thomas, doubting Thomas. 
what you're missing is that he doesn't have to die on all of those worlds. He died on this one. His atonement was infinite and eternal. And we need to understand just how all-encompassing those two adjectives are. Infinite, eternal, but it only had to take place here. Which begs the question, why here? How are we so lucky to, be, to share the same planet with the Savior who came here to live and to die? Well, I don't know if it's an honor <laughs> or privilege, actually, because it does say something about the planet on which we live and the people with whom we share it. To answer that question, I would first go to 2 Nephi chapter 10, verse 3, where Jacob explains, It must needs be expedient that Christ should come among the Jews. Now, we're still talking about just this one planet, okay? But why Israel? Why there? He said that he should come up among the Jews, among those who are the more wicked part of the world, and they shall crucify him. For thus it behooveth our God. And there is none other nation on earth that would crucify their God. For should the mighty miracles be wrought among other nations, they would repent and know that he be their God. Now, please do not turn that verse into some justification for anti-Semitism. That is not what it's intended to be. Uh, we, you, we must not blame Judaism, past or present, for the crucifixion. If Christ had to die for all of us, then I'm as much to blame for the crucifixion as anyone is. But to think of, and Jacob even talks about this, priestcrafts. So we're talking about specific Jewish leaders at the time who were afraid of losing their power and their authority because people were going to follow Jesus, this so-called king of the Jews. No, we can't have that. So because of pride and power and priestcraft, they ended up crucifying Jesus. And since Jesus had to be crucified to, to atone for the sins of the world, to succumb to death so he could overcome death, then where could we possibly send him that wouldn't end up honoring and obeying and exalting him from, from the first notice of his glory. Well, in this case, he's going to have to be sent there and then among them. Well, that's on the global scale. Now expand it to the universal, and we shift from Jacob to Enoch. And in Moses chapter 7, Enoch has this vision in which God says, Wherefore I can stretch forth mine hands and hold all the creations which I have made. Okay, this is the God of worlds without number, right? And mine eye can pierce them also. And among all the workmanship of mine hands, there has not been so great wickedness as among thy brethren. Now that should send a little shudder through the soul to think that of worlds without number, ours was the only one wicked enough to crucify our king, ours was the worst. It's like we live in the sewer of the universe. Wow, thanks. <laughs> and yet, to see the kind of balance that must be done to also cleanse and purify this earth so that it can be a site for the second coming of Jesus Christ, that he can come to rule and reign among us for his millennium, for his hour, to visit us so that we can rejoice in the joy of his countenance. That Christ is coming back. He won't stay here eternally because there are yet other worlds without number to visit 
and to rejoice with. Now when the earth becomes sanctified and celestialized, with, we're all in the presence of God. The throne of God, what is this sea of glass? All things are present, known and seen. We will be in the presence of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost eternally in the celestial kingdom. But in the meantime, it's fascinating for me to ponder the Lord of the universe and the role of Jesus Christ coming here to, to spend his mortal life, to, to take on flesh, to condescend, to be crucified, and to rise again, but also to have paternal care and have made ample provision, as we've discussed earlier, to go throughout his field and spend time with every laborer. It really is mind-blowing. One other verse from that Moses 7 vision of Enoch said, It came to pass that Enoch looked upon the earth, this one, the, the sewer of the universe, and he heard a voice from the bowels thereof saying, Woe, woe is me, the mother of men. I am pained. I am weary because of the wickedness of my children. When shall I rest and be cleansed from the filthiness which has gone forth out of me? When will my Creator sanctify me, that I may rest and righteousness for a season abide upon my face? Such a powerful personification, embodiment of the earth itself, the earth that must die and be quickened again, the earth that is living, fulfilling the measure of its creation and preparing itself to be sanctified by its creator to become the celestial kingdom. It will someday rejoice with the righteousness upon her face, especially when she sees the light of the countenance, the smile on the face of her creator, even Jesus Christ. Now this, once our mind expands to this point and our mind is totally blown, we kind of get Oh, over-anxious or maybe overzealous. I want to know everything else there is to know. Show me the whole thing. And that's actually exactly what Moses experienced in Moses chapter 1. This is part of that man is nothing, which thing I never had supposed. Like, man, I am a speck. I mean, I was raised in Pharaoh's court, uh, the pyramids and the temple of Luxor. I, I was thinking that, that mortal men were pretty amazing in terms of the stuff we could create. But I don't feel so proud anymore. What you have created since God shows Moses worlds without number... And mind blown, he's like, I want to understand all of it. And the Lord reigns him in a bit with a very important verse. Yes, he tells him, worlds without number have I created. And I also created them for mine own purpose, which is to bring to pass immortality, eternal life of man. And by the Son I created them, which is mine only begotten. Remember, it's by him, of him, through him, that the inhabitants thereof, of all these worlds without number, were, are begotten sons and daughters unto God. But then Moses hears this from God. I mean, thoroughly mind blown. I want to see it all. God then reigns him in with this. But only an account of this earth and the inhabitants thereof give I unto you. You got it, Moses? Let's focus for a minute. This is where the creation account begins. Okay, I'm going to tell you about the creation of this earth only and the inhabitants of this earth only. I mean, that's, what, that's the stuff you need to know. If you can just understand how to pass your test, how to fulfill the measure of your creation, then you'll come home to me. And believe me, we can have a Q&A period like you can't imagine. I'll explain all the rest of things, okay? But don't get lost in, in the big picture. 
from, from focusing on the small picture, which is your mortal experience. And Moses wisely accepts that. Okay? The Lord says to him, Behold, there are many worlds that have passed away by the word of my power. So there's kind of worlds past. And there are many that now stand. Now here's worlds present. And innumerable are they unto man. But all things are numbered unto me, for they are mine and I know them. But again, only the one you're standing on is the one that really matters to you. So be okay with my explanation of this one world. And Moses accepts that. It says, It came to pass that Moses spake unto the Lord, saying, Be merciful unto thy servant, O God, and tell me concerning this earth and the inhabitants thereof, and also the heavens, and then thy servant will be content. I love that the Lord does both. He parts the veil to see the big picture, but then focuses him back on the task at hand and the world you stand on. Uh, to me, it describes one of my favorite contraries of the nature of God. And that's the infinite right alongside the intimate. I need you to know the big picture, or at least catch a glimpse of it, so that you sense just how, just how much I've got going on, okay? So that you'll have a sense of awe and understanding and hopefully humility and faith in me. Just like Job ends up once he sees the big picture with God. He sees the infinite but at the same time, to couple the infinite with the intimate, let's talk about your world. In fact, let me come to your world and let me be like man almost. Let me condescend so that I can be one with you and you one with me. Moses comes to understand that. Enoch comes to understand it. Hopefully each of us come to understand it. In fact, many of you over the, over the year have, have noticed this painting behind me. Uh, some have wondered, is that a book behind you? What is that? It's a painting that my oldest daughter made for me. And it is uh, the hand of God in the hand of one of us. A child's hand in the hand of the universe itself. That's why that hand is, is the starry night. And the caption is intimate infinity. God is both. I treasure that masterpiece that my daughter painted for me after I tried to help her understand who God is, that he is both. Moses' experience, Enoch's vision, the Lord's parable in section 88 is meant to help us come to an understanding of those dual realities of our parents in heaven. How does the genie say it in the old version of uh, Aladdin? Infinite cosmic powers itty-bitty living space. Well, to see God's infinite cosmic power and his willingness to condescend to itty-bitty living space here on our planet where we can rejoice in the joy of his countenance. Well, sufficiently mind-blown? Let's get back to section 88 then. Verse 62, again, verily I say unto you, my friends, I want you to know what I'm doing here, I leave these sayings with you to ponder in your hearts with this commandment, which I give unto you, that ye shall call upon me while I am near. See what the Lord is doing? I know this, was, this is like major food for thought. So go ahead and just, I'm going to leave you now before, the, I mean, the smoke is coming out of your ears as we speak. So I'm going to leave off these sayings for now, okay? And just let you ponder them. But here's the commandment I leave at the same time. Draw near unto me, call upon me, I'm here with you, I'm aware of your situation, 
I have an entire universe to govern and to preserve and to perfect and to sanctify. While I'm near, please take advantage of the time that you have with my presence, with the presence of prophets. These last days, preparing the earth for the second coming of Jesus Christ, a visit from the, the Lord of the field. Don't miss your moment. In verse 63, draw near unto me, and I will draw near unto you. Seek me diligently, and ye shall find me. Ask, and ye shall receive. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. You see the order there? You, first, draw near unto me, and then I will draw near unto you. But even that, I wonder, do we ever really begin the process? Yes, he wants us to come unto him, and he will come rushing. There's the prodigal son. The prodigal son comes to himself and begins the journey home, and then dad comes sprinting out to meet him. I know that the Lord runs a lot further than we do in our rendezvous. But I even wonder, do any of us really begin the process? Or has been the Lord... Has the Lord been hitting his tuning fork? The Methodists have a beautiful doctrine they call prevenient grace. Prevenient, it comes before. And it's this grace that calls to us that we then choose to respond to. So the Lord can then respond to us with grace. I think there's truth to that. Uh, he calls, he beckons. He fills the world with his light, which is his love and his word and his truth and his spirit. And we respond. We draw near unto him, and he draws near unto us, if we'll seek diligently. In verse 64, Whatsoever ye ask the Father in my name, it shall be given unto you, that is expedient for you, important caveat there, and if ye ask anything that is not expedient for you, it shall turn unto your condemnation. I mean, he's not the genie in the lamp in that way. He's not trying to, oh yeah, anything you want. No, it needs to be the right thing. So may I help educate your desires. Learn about the law of the kingdoms you want to inherit. Stay within the bounds and the conditions. Work within my work and glory in my glory. And you'll know what to ask for. It will be expedient and it will be given. Verse 66, behold, that which you hear is as the voice of one crying in the wilderness. We usually associate that phrase with John the Baptist, who was crying in the wilderness to prepare for Christ. Well, here's now Christ himself crying in the wilderness, trying to prepare us all for his return. In the wilderness, he explains, because you can't see him. My voice, because my voice is spirit. My spirit is truth. Truth abideth and hath no end. If it be in you, it shall abound. This truth shineth. The light of Christ, the homing beacon within you, the tuning fork, let it vibrate and, and resonate with the frequency of light and love and truth and spirit that I'm sending. Verse 67, if your eye be single to my glory, just laser focused on that, not distracted by lesser loyalties. If your eye be single to my glory, your whole bodies shall be filled with light. There shall be no darkness in you, and that body which is filled with light comprehendeth all things. That's the light by which we truly see. So 68, therefore, sanctify yourselves. Make yourselves holy. Better yet, let me make you holy. I am able to do it if you'll let me. Sanctify yourselves, that your minds become single to God. 
I single to my glory, mind single to God, and the days will come that you shall see him. For he will unveil his face unto you, and it shall be in his own time and in his own way and according to his own will. I mean, you're already seeing him in the creation all around you. You've seen him move in his majesty and power. You see him, but do you comprehend him? Do you know him? Someday you will. Someday every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. Someday we will see as we are seen and know as we are known. But in the meantime, if you'll, if you'll become holy, if you'll let me sanctify you, then you'll see me in my own time and my own way and my own will. Hold on to those conditions also. It's not us calling the shots. It's not us binding God. But it is him holding himself to, to his word, since he is the word. Keeping to his covenant, since he established it. And that we, he wants to be known, he wants to be seen. But it'll be in his way. We'll talk more about that in section 93, where that beautiful verse begins with a similar promise. Now verse 69, remember the great and last promise which I have made unto you. And this is again, last as in latest the latest promise was this promise of eternal life, this Holy Spirit of promise, this second comforter. Remember the great and last promise which I have made unto you. And in order to receive it, cast away your idle thoughts, your excess of laughter far from you. He's not saying you can't laugh or have fun, but he is saying, oh, remember uh, Alma's counsel to all three of his sons, Helaman, and Shiblon, Corianton. Be sober, which isn't, don't drink. It's be, well, you shouldn't drink, but be sober as in be serious. Take serious things seriously. And nothing's more serious than the opportunity to, to receive that incredible promise from God, the Holy Spirit of promise. That light is lost on the light-minded. We have to... We have to, Elder Maxwell, you know, Elder Holland said this, that in the end we must not be casual Christians or we will end up Christian casualties. Don't take it casually. Don't take it light-mindedly. Cast away your idle thoughts, your excess of laughter, more than what would be appropriate. And then in verse 70, he shifts and lets us know, and this is what you need to be doing seriously, okay? Tarry ye, tarry ye in this place. They're in Kirtland. Everybody wants to move to Missouri because that's the center place. That's where it's all going to happen. Well, not all. There's a stronghold here in Kirtland we need to develop or establish. So tarry in this place. And do what here? Call a solemn assembly, even of those who are the first laborers in this last kingdom. Remember, this is a conference of high priests there in Kirtland. Remember, Kirtland was the place that we're going to work on the law of consecration and be endowed with power from on high. Ooh, there's going to be a temple here. First temple of this dispensation. And that's where the solemn assemblies will take place. We'll call in our solemn assemblies in spirit. Isn't that the spirit of God like a fire is burning? Which W.W. Phelps wrote for the dedication of the Kirtland temple. We'll get there in section 109 and 110. But to call this solemn assembly, you first laborers, this is my last kingdom, we've got to get you up to speed, and, and missionaries are endowed with power before they head out to serve. 71, let those whom they have warned in their traveling, 
call on the Lord and ponder the warning in their hearts, which they have received for a little season. So you missionaries, you've gone out, you've shared the gospel with others. I hope they're taking your words seriously. I hope you took your, your job seriously in, in, in terms of your mission. But ponder these warnings. The thesis statement of the Doctrine and Covenants, prepare ye, prepare ye for that which is to come. The day of the Lord is nigh. Section 1 also, the voice of warning will be unto all people. Well, this warning voice has gone forth. Verse 72, Behold and lo, I will take care of your flocks, and will raise up elders and send unto them. I don't think he just means, oh, don't worry about your temporal needs back at home. Yes, I'll take care of those too. But I wonder that these flocks, you good under-shepherds of the good shepherd himself, oh, I'll take care of them. You warn them. They now need to warn others. You need to warn others beyond them. I'll take care of all these flocks. I'll raise up additional elders, more under-shepherds to help care for them. Because why 73? I will hasten my work in its time. We've seen so many elements of that, that, that timing of I will cut short the work in righteousness, that if those days aren't shortened, there shall no flesh be saved. Where at the same time, it's they, their days were prolonged so that they could repent since they're procrastinating the day of their repentance. The Lord's caught between a rock and a hard place here. And here the Lord will hasten. Now notice the first person pronouns. I will hasten. It is my work after all. And so don't think that it's, well, I have to hasten the Lord's work. No, the Lord is. We just have to be ready for his call. Yes, we can quicken our pace and lengthen our stride, but it's the Lord that is hastening his work. And what will that work entail? Look at verse 74. And I give unto you who are the first laborers in this last kingdom, a commandment that you should assemble yourselves together and organize yourselves, and prepare yourselves, and sanctify yourselves. Yea, purify your hearts, and cleanse your hands and your feet before me, that I may make you clean. Now this is all pointing in a temple direction, but notice the words again. To assemble, to gather. Why do we gather the people of God in any age, Joseph Smith asked, and his answer, to build temples. So we're going to assemble, we're going to organize ourselves and prepare ourselves. We'll see those two repeated in a later verse, okay? Organize, prepare, sanctify. We've got to be holy, even as he is holy. And, and I love how he puts it. Purify your hearts and cleanse your hands and your feet. We'll see more about that later on. But heart and hands, remember that great verse from Psalm 24? It's a temple text as well. The Lord asks, who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Mountain of the Lord is the temple, right? So who's going to come into the temple? Or who shall stand in his holy place? The holy place is the temple again. This is a temple text. And then he answers, he that hath clean hands and a pure heart. Elder Oaks talked about that, that hands are our actions. Heart is our inner motivations. And we need to have both clean hands and a pure heart. That's what grants us access to the presence of God. But I also love how he puts it. You go and cleanse that I may make you clean. You do your part. I'll do, I'll do mine. I will hasten my work. Okay? And the only one who can really make you holy is me. But it helps if you do a little scrubbing beforehand. Okay? Uh, confession is the scouring of the soul, Elder Maxwell once said. So as you repent and confess and forsake your sins, as you exercise faith in me and take my name upon you through baptism and receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, 
You're doing everything you can on your part to cleanse your hands and your feet, to purify your heart. But at the end of the day, it is I and I only that am able to make you clean. And verse 75, why clean? Why do you need to be cleansed and purified? That I may testify unto your Father and your God and my God that you are clean from the blood of this wicked generation. That I may fulfill this promise, this great and last promise, which I have made unto you when I will. You see, that's the testimony he wants to give. We learned back in section 45 that Jesus is our advocate with the Father. He's our defense attorney. And what he'll say as he pleads our case is, Father, behold the sufferings and death of him in whom there was no sin. Remember we discussed this. Look at me. Don't look at them. But there is a peace. How can you not look at us? And hopefully when the Lord, when God looks at us, he sees someone who lived an imperfect life, admittedly, but who came unto Christ to be made clean. I did repent. I, yes, I had plenty of sins to repent of, but I, I did my absolute best to purify my heart and to cleanse my hands. And the Lord, in his mercy and through his grace, made me clean. And now the Son can testify to the Father. They are clean. I made them clean. They are worthy now, through me, of thy glory. Verse 76, Also I give unto you a commandment that ye shall continue in prayer and fasting from this time forth. That helps with cleansing and purifying also. And I give unto you a commandment that you shall teach one another the doctrine of the kingdom. So that will help as well. You see, as we're assembling, as we're organizing, as we're trying to sanctify and become pure, then our prayers, our fasting, and our learning, the, the commandments of God, our learning His doctrine. Remember, Elder uh, Packer used to talk about this all the time, that true doctrine understood will change our behavior better than studying behavior will. So come together and teach one another the doctrine of the kingdom. As you learn it, you'll want to live it. And as you live it, it will change you. It'll allow me to change you. And then he begins to explain just what he wants us to learn. Verse 78, 79, 80 are such a powerful passage when it comes to education. I actually remember on a, on a, a drive with my son. At the time, he hated school. He's slowly getting better. Uh, but he just was like, oh, why do I have to go to school? I'm never going to lose this stuff. I, I can't stand it, whatever. And I said, open up to section 88 of the Doctrine and Covenants. And dutifully, uh, he did. And I said, read verse 78. And I want you to see what it is the Lord wants you to learn. Verse 78, he read, teach ye diligently and my grace shall attend you. It's a great combination. We do our best to be diligent and he offers his grace to assist us that you may be instructed more perfectly in, and here's our, our list of curriculum, in theory, in principle, in doctrine, in the law of the gospel, in all things that pertain unto the kingdom of God that are expedient for you to understand. And I asked my son, what kind of classes is that? And he said, well, it's seminary. And then he's like, well, I, I, don't, I, I like seminary. I'm like, good, that's good. You're talking to a seminary institute teacher, so you better. Uh, he said, but, but why, don't I, why do I have to learn everything else? I said, that's a great question. Keep reading. And if verse 78 describes our spiritual education, then verse 79 describes our secular education. And there's a whole curriculum here, too. Verse 79, of things both in heaven, there's our astronomy class, 
and in the earth and under the earth, so is that earth sciences, is that geology? Things which have been, ooh, I was a history major, so check that box for me, okay? Things which have been, things which are, now that's a broad one. Is that current events? Is that, uh, I don't know, biology? Is that literature? There's a lot of things that are. Is that, yeah, just learn it all, okay? Understand the world that you live in, okay? Things which must shortly come to pass. Ooh, I, I, don't, I didn't see Prophecy 101 in the, in the course catalog. Well, learn those things which must shortly come to pass. That's current affairs. That's maybe international relations. I, I don't know, politics perhaps. Things which are at home. So there's domestic issues. Things which are abroad. Okay, there is the international. The wars and the perplexities of the nations. So yeah, there's the politics. There's the foreign relations. There's the political science. And the judgments which are on the land and a knowledge also of countries and of kingdoms. So there's geography. I mean, you, could, you can go through and, and line up your, your course catalog with sections 88 verse 79 and realize, wow, the Lord really wants me to know all this stuff. Now, by now, my son, he was, he was okay with 78. He was more frustrated with 79. Like, really? It's not just... It's not just you and mom that's making me go to school, and it's not just the, the school board that's making me take, I'll take all these classes I don't want. Now God's on my back too. I'm like, yeah. But he's got a good reason, and that reason's verse 80. So read that one too, son. And this was the one that changed his attitude towards everything he was complaining about from verse 79. Verse 80, why do I have to take all these classes? That ye may be prepared in all things when I shall send you again to, one, magnify the calling whereunto I have called you, and two, the mission with which I have commissioned you. And it was so reassuring to watch my son just kind of soften there in the passenger seat to the point he's like, man, I got to mark this scripture. <laughs> because he realized there's a reason for all of this. And it's not just because when he's like, I'm never going to use it. And I said, well, you never know. Because someday you might teach someone in the mission field that that's their interest. It's amazing how many analogies Elder Uchtdorf has got from aviation uh, or truths and principles that President Nelson has learned from cardiology. Uh, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to teach the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Elder Richard G. Scott was a rocket scientist. <laughs> he was a nuclear physicist. And he did use those insights and truths to teach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Whatever you're doing, whatever you're learning, it can be laid on the altar. To me, there's something powerful about consecrating our education. That's the more used would I be. That's the plunder the, the riches of Egypt so that I have gold to turn into tabernacle implements. It's like Clayton Christensen, one of the great business minds of the 21st century. And, and what he learned as a college kid was counsel from his mom. Learn everything you can. Get as much education as you can, the best education you can. Why? So that you'll be more usable to the Lord. And he did become usable in incredible ways. So spiritual education, 78. Secular education, 79. The purpose of that education, 80. Go bless the world. More specifically, 81. Behold, I sent you out to testify and warn the people. This is a voice of warning after all. 
and it becometh every man who hath been warned to warn his neighbor. These are the ripples in the pond. And I threw in this rock of revelation so that you would begin to expand your understanding and enlighten. But it's got to keep spreading from you. Do not be the weak link in the chain. Do not kink the hose or there's no reason for me to send water through it. If you've been warned, then warn your neighbor. I was amazed on my mission in Puerto Rico when, the, when hurricanes were coming by. And we were kind of oblivious and, and feeling pretty uh, invincible as, as 19, 20-year-old missionaries. And so we'd just be out in the streets, still biking around, still street contacting when no one was in the streets. Now, still knocking on doors when every door was like nailed shut, <laughs> basically. And every once in a while, we'd see somebody that would look out at us, clueless American gringos, and they're like, get inside. Uh, there's a hurricane coming. Haven't you heard? And it was amazing for me. It was like this role reversal. It's like, ah, oh, you warning me. Hmm. And you getting frustrated because it seems like I'm ignoring you. Yes, I know exactly what that feels like. Because just like you are warning me of impending danger that I seem oblivious to, I am trying to wake up the world to warn you about the the dangers of a wicked world and the glories of a promised coming of Jesus Christ. I have been warned. I'm warning you. Now warn your neighbor. Verse 82, Therefore, they are left without excuse, and their sins are upon their own heads, because where much was given, much was required. You've been warned. You now need to act upon those warnings and spread them to the next. Otherwise, your sin is on your own head. You sin against the greater light. You receive the greater condemnation. Verse 83, He that seeketh me early shall find me and shall not be forgotten. There was those promises earlier. Draw near unto me. I will draw near unto you. Sanctify yourself. Have an eye single to my glory. You'll see me. You'll know me. Verse 84, Therefore tarry ye. Stay here in Kirtland. Labor diligently that ye may be perfected in your ministry. It's all missionary work still, to be endowed in order to go out with that power and share the power with others. Be perfected in your ministry to go forth among the Gentiles for the last time, as many as the mouth of the Lord shall name, to bind up the law, to seal up the testimony, and to prepare the saints for the hour of judgment which is to come. Interesting phrases there. To bind up the law, to seal up the testimony. Isaiah used those same phrases. And I get in my mind this mental image of you've got these scrolls of the law, right? And to, to bind them up, to seal them. It's like, it's time to go, folks. Okay, we got, we got to wrap up the show. Let, let's roll up the scriptures. Let's close the book because it's past time to study. It's now time to go out and live. We've been warned. Now let's go warn our neighbor. Uh, have we done, the Lord is hastening his work in his time. And are we up to speed so that when he says, case closed, we can bind the law, we can seal the testimony. The saints are prepared for the hour of judgment because I've been sanctified for it. I'm prepared for the cleansing of the earth because I've been made clean through Jesus Christ. And with that, we start to see this cleansing uh, preparatory to the second coming. This is where section 88 becomes a mini book of Revelation. It's fascinating. 85, he begins, that their souls may escape the wrath of God, 
the desolation of abomination which awaits the wicked both in this world and in the world to come. Desolation of abominations. That we saw that back in section 84. That's the phrase that was used to describe the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans, which Jesus used as his, his preview of coming attractions, namely the destruction of the wicked at the coming of Christ. What you see in this abomination of desolations, 70 AD, will be what you'll see in the desolation of abominations at the destruction of the wicked at the end of the world. He goes on in verse 85, Verily I say unto you, let those who are not the first elders continue in the vineyard until the mouth of the Lord shall call them. For their time is not yet come. Their garments are not clean from the blood of this generation. We're not yet done. So this immediate audience in the 1830s has been followed by generation after generation of additional laborers in the vineyard that are out there calling people to repent who are trying to cleanse themselves and others from the blood of this generation. Interesting phrase. Seems that every age has its own besetting sins. And the things that our ancestors grappled with are very different from the things that we're wrestling with ourselves. And it's not their age that I have to overcome. It's my own. It's the blood of my generation that I need to be able to escape. Verse 86, abide ye in the liberty wherewith ye are made free. Entangle not yourselves in sin, but let your hands be clean until the Lord comes. Such a powerful way of saying that. You've been made free. How? Through Jesus Christ. Through repentance and redemption. And you've got to abide in that liberty. Remember section 82, don't go back to former sins or those former sins will return Abide in liberty. Christ has made you whole. Stay with him. Abide with him. Don't get entangled again in sin. He finally got you out of it. Don't fall back in. Verse 87, for not many days hence, now we're starting to see prophecy of the, these final days, not many days hence, and the earth shall tremble and reel to and fro as a drunken man. The sun shall hide his face and shall refuse to give light. The moon shall be bathed in blood and the stars shall become exceedingly angry and shall cast themselves down as a fig that falleth from off a fig tree. There's our mini book of Revelation. We're starting to see, oh, chapter six now with the shaking of the earth, earthquakes in diverse places, sun, dark, and moon to blood, stars falling from heaven. And how's the, the chapter end? Who shall be able to stand? That's what he's asking. He's trying to help everyone stand firm through this period of the signs of the times. Verse 88, after your testimony cometh wrath and indignation upon the people. So which testimony are people open to hear? This was back in section 29, signs of the times. Section 43, signs of the times. All these voices that God will send to try to wake up the world. That was the Lord's alarm clock we saw in section 43. Well, what kind of testimonies? After yours, there's the, there's the good one, the, worth, the one worth listening to. It's a little gentler on the ears. But after that's the testimony of wrath and indignation. Do you, will you listen to mercy as, it, as she beckons? Or will you cower in fear when judgment and justice come to call? 89, after your testimony cometh the testimony of earthquakes that shall cause groanings in the midst of her, and men shall fall upon the ground and shall not be able to stand. There's that same phrase from Revelation. Who shall be able to stand? Well, not these people. They didn't listen to the earlier testimonies. Now they're being brought. They wouldn't kneel 
based on a testimony of truth. And so they are brought to their knees based on a testimony of destruction. Verse 90 describes some of those. Also cometh the testimony of the voice of thunderings and the voice of lightnings and the voice of tempests and the voice of the waves of the sea heaving themselves beyond their bounds. Those are all voices. Those are all ways the Lord is calling us to change. How oft would I have gathered thee as a hen gathereth her chickens. He's clucking every chance he can. Verse 91, all things shall be in commotion. War poured out upon all nations. We're seeing it. And surely men's hearts shall fail them. For fear shall come upon all people. I think it was Elder Holland that once described that as perhaps the scariest of the signs of the times. That men's hearts shall fail them. That the love of men will wax cold. Are we seeing that spread around us? And in the midst of all of that, verse 92, sounding more and more like the book of Revelation, and angels shall fly through the midst of heaven, crying with a loud voice, sounding the trump of God, saying, Prepare ye, prepare ye, O inhabitants of the earth, for the judgment of our God is come. Behold, and lo, the bridegroom cometh. Go ye out to meet him. Sound like those destroying angels we learned about in the parable of the wheat and the tares that are ready and waiting to be sent forth to reap, to gather. These, these angels are sounding the trump. Get ready. The bridegroom's coming. Go out to meet him. Don't just wait for him to arrive. Prepare yourself to the point that you can shorten the gap. Allow him to hasten his work in its time. Verse 93, and immediately there shall appear a great sign in heaven, and all people shall see it together. Jesus spoke of that great sign in Matthew 24, among these other lesser signs of the times. Some wonder what might that be. Joseph Smith explained, then will appear one grand sign of the Son of Man in heaven. But what will the world do? Oh, they'll say it's a planet, a comet, etc. But the Son of Man will come as the sign of the coming of the Son of Man, which will be as the light of the morning cometh out of the east. No wonder all nations shall see it together. This, as the sun shines from the east, even unto the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. That's how Jesus said it in Matthew. And with that great sign, verse 94, what happens? Another angel shall sound his trump. Now, the book of Revelation also talks a lot about angels sounding their trumpets. That was one of the questions that Joseph and others had in section 77. What's all that about? Okay, it's still on their mind. We saw angels flying in 92, sounding the trump of God. But here we see the first official trumpet blast. There will be seven of them. And this first one, 94, this angel shall sound his trump. And trumpets are symbolic of clear messages. This one will say, that great church, the mother of abominations, which made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, that persecuteth the saints of God, that shed their blood. This is the one who goes out planting tares in the field we met last week. She who sitteth upon many waters and upon the islands of the sea. She's everywhere. Behold, she is the tares of the earth. Hmm. So she's not just planting them. She is them. So interesting. She is bound in bundles. Her bands are made strong. No man can loose them. Therefore she is ready to be burned, and he shall sound his trump both long and loud, and all nations shall hear it. This is the collapse of Babylon. This is the beginning of the end. 
Okay, oh, Babylon has fallen, it has fallen. We'll see more of that. But this, this mother of abominations, this, this scarlet whore, the tares have been bound. Now, what does that suggest has already happened? Remember, we read this last week in section 86, that before the tares are bound in bundles and the field is burned, the righteous have been gathered out. Why do you think this is a missionary section? Why do you think you've got to go warn your neighbors because you've been warned? Why am I endowing you with power from on high so that you have power to go out and wake up the world? These are the voices of destruction. They are preceded by the voice of mercy, of invitation. Come unto Christ, draw near unto him. He will draw near unto you. That's all we're doing. We are inviting people to come unto Christ because the day will come after that the trumpets will sound. This is all the, the, the lead up to Armageddon when the sower of the tares is unmasked as a tear itself. Like begets like, well, darkness begets darkness. And as they bind themselves together into these subgroups of, of evil ideology, then they are ready to be burned. Verse 95, there shall be silence in heaven for the space of half an hour. That's a phrase that comes from the book of Revelation also. And immediately after shall the curtain of heaven be unfolded as a scroll is unfolded after it is rolled up, and the face of the Lord shall be unveiled. This silence in heaven, I've heard it described, there are silences of pain, where you just can't, it hurts so bad you can't talk. There are silences of sorrow, where I, I can't bring myself to talk about this. It's, I'm, it hurts too much, I'm too sad and sorrowful. There is a, a silence of fear where you just don't want to make a sound to alert anyone that might be around you that you're here hiding. There is a silence of anticipation. I've always loved when I go to the symphony to hear them tune their strings. Just that, that sound, it's kind of cacophony, but, but it, I don't know, to me it's this beautiful sound and then there's silence. And you're just waiting for the conductor to begin that opening note. And, and for silence in heaven, for half an hour, for a short period of time. I mean, you can do the math. Some people do a thousand years with man is a day with God. So half an hour, that's like 20 something years, whatever. Okay. Uh, you know me, I prefer the symbolic. And if it's just, I'm okay with the vague. Uh, I'm not going to date something. I'll simply say that for a, a specified time period, there is that silence, that wondering, if we use the Book of Mormon as our preview of coming attractions after the days of Samuel the Lamanite and all kinds of signs and to, to show the coming of Christ, there was a time where not much was happening and it allowed people to fall back into their doubt and, and into, their, into their wickedness. Well, here, silence in heaven, then the heavens are unfolded. We, we rolled up the scrolls. Well, now we're unfolding them, the heavens itself. The face of the Lord is unveiled. And 96, the saints that are upon the earth who are alive shall be quickened and be caught up to meet him, to rise above the destruction of the world below us. 97, they who have slept in their graves shall come forth, for their graves shall be opened, and they also shall be caught up to meet him in the midst of the pillar of heaven. This is the resurrection of the just. 
This is the morning of the first resurrection. We talked earlier on this section, right? Resurrection is through the redemption of Jesus Christ. You'll be quickened by a degree of glory for whatever kingdom you're prepared for. Well, this, these are the celestial ones. The morning of the first resurrection, there's celestial. 98, they are Christ's, the first fruits. They who shall descend with him first. They who are on the earth and in their graves who are first caught up to meet him and all this by the voice of the sounding of the trump of the angel of God. That is the raising of the celestial. 99, now the raising of the terrestrial. After this, another angel shall sound, which is the second trump. Then cometh the redemption of those who are Christ's at his coming, who have received their part in that prison, which is prepared for them, that they might receive the gospel and be judged according to men in the flesh. Back in section 76, we learned about them as the terrestrial kingdom. They had an opportunity to accept the gospel in this life. The, the book of Peter, Peter uses the, the victims of the flood as the poster children for this group. They had Noah crying repentance, but they disregarded it. Well, they came to their senses in the spirit world. Prison has that effect. Uh, and, and they received, they were willing to receive a terrestrial glory. So there's the second trump. The third is in 100. You can probably guess what's happening next. We have the celestial and the first trumpet sound, the terrestrial. That's still the resurrection of the just, celestial and terrestrial. Then 100, again, another trump shall sound, which is the third trump. And then come the spirits of men who are to be judged and are found under condemnation. So this is the resurrection of the unjust. Remember celestial, terrestrial, telestial. Terrestrial didn't really do anything, bad or good. It's more sins of omission on their part. They were honorable, just not valiant. So they're still among the just. Whereas telestial, and even worse, outer darkness, there's the resurrection of the unjust. And so verse 100, the resurrection of the telestial at the end of the millennium. Verse 101, and these are the rest of the dead. And they live not again until the thousand years are ended, end of the millennium, neither again until the end of the earth. And then, 102, another trump shall sound, which is the fourth trump, saying, There are found among those who are to remain until that great and last day, even the end, who shall remain filthy still. We saw that phrase earlier in this revelation. And those who remain filthy still. And no wonder there's no light there. They don't want to be seen in their filthiness. There's the outer darkness, the sons of perdition. That's the fourth trumpet. Verse 103, another trumpet shall sound, which is the fifth trump which is the fifth angel who committeth the everlasting gospel, flying through the midst of heaven unto all nations, kindreds, tongues, and people. In some ways, this is a return trip for this angel. We often associate him with Revelation 14. Uh, another angel shall fly through the midst of heaven with the everlasting gospel to commit to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. We usually think of the angel Moroni with that. But to think of him coming again, this fifth trumpet sound, as if to say, not, I told you so, but in a way, I did tell you. I taught you. I gave you every opportunity. The celestial received it. The terrestrial eventually accepted it. The telestial rejected it. The outer darkness defied it and denied it. But it's been here. It's when, the way Jacob says it in 2 Nephi 9, that we will all Admit that God's judgments are just. That my transgressions are mine. I didn't hand them over. I didn't repent of my sins. We'll all wave the white flag and acknowledge God's justice here because the truth had been before us all along. 
So this angel comes flying through the midst of heaven. He had the everlasting gospel. It had been presented to us before. And 104, this shall be the sound of his trump, saying to all people, both in heaven and in earth, and that are under the earth, for every ear shall hear it, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess, while they hear the sound of the trump, saying, Fear God, give glory to him who sitteth upon the throne forever and ever, for the hour of his judgment is come. You understand why it would be that same angel coming through? You had your chance. I made sure that you received it. And now that your knees are bowing and your tongues are confessing, do you realize the purpose behind my calls to kneel before him and to confess his name far before this last day? Verse 105, again, another angel shall sound his trump, which is the sixth angel, saying, She is fallen, who made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. She is fallen, is fallen. This sixth angel seems to be echoing the trumpet blast of the first angel. Babylon has fallen. She tried to make all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. But now look that it's all come back to haunt her. And she who dug a pit for her neighbor has fallen into a bottomless pit herself. Then in verse 106, again, another angel shall sound his trump, which is the seventh angel. Seven days of creation, seven for totality and completeness and finality. The seventh angel's message, it is finished. It is finished. Exclamation point. The Lamb of God hath overcome and trodden the winepress alone, even the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. We'll see that symbolism repeated in section 133. But for him to have stained all his raiment so that we could become clean from the blood of our generation, that he trod the winepress and he did it alone so that he wouldn't have to be alone on judgment, that he could bring with him anyone who chose to come unto him when they had that chance. It is finished. He has overcome and he's helped us overcome with him. And then, verse 107, shall the angels be crowned with the glory of his might, and the saints shall be filled with his glory, and receive their inheritance and be made equal with him. That's the ultimate promise of the oath and covenant of the priesthood. They receive the Son. As a result, they receive the Father. As a result, they receive the Father's kingdom and receive all that the Father hath. Uh, the book of Revelation describes that too, that you can come and sit with me in my throne even as I sit with the Father in his. It's a strange-looking throne. There's room enough for all of us, if only we'll come to be made equal with him. Talk about infinite generosity. The way Paul describes it to the Romans, we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Amazing he would share that with us. Verse 108, Then shall the first angel again sound his trump, in the ears of all living, and reveal the secret acts of men and the mighty works of God in the first thousand years. There's a lot of echoing going on here. As the sound of the trumpets goes around the circle a second time, the first angel now returns and speaks of all God has done, the secret acts of men, the mighty works of God. 
in the first thousand years. Remember the question that they had in section 77 about the book with the seven seals? And the seven seals were the 7,000 years of the earth's temporal existence. Well, now these seven angels that have poured out their vials of wrath, these seven angels that have announced the end of all things, now they come back to review all that's been done within those seven seals. All the work that God has done and all the work that we've forced him into because of our own wickedness. The first angel for the first thousand years, 109, the second angel sounds his trump, reveals the secret acts of men, the thoughts and intents of their hearts, the mighty works of God in the second thousand years, and so on until the seventh angel shall sound his trump. And he shall stand forth upon the land and upon the sea and swear in the name of him who sitteth upon the throne that there shall be time no longer. Satan shall be bound, that old serpent who is called the devil, and shall not be loosed for the space of a thousand years. Time no longer, as in time to prepare to meet God, for he's here, he's among us. Time to repent of our sins. We procrastinated the day of our repentance until it is everlastingly too late. Now the test is over. Satan is bound. He's cast into that bottomless pit with, with a key that Christ alone can, can turn. And only at the end of the millennium will he turn it. Like it said at the end of 110, he shall not be loosed for the space of a thousand years. But then he will be, 111. Then he shall be loosed for a little season. book of Revelation talks about that too. That he may gather together his armies We've, we've discussed this in prior revelations in the Doctrine and Covenants. And as we've scratched our heads like, why on earth would you let him out when you had him right where you wanted him? Well, part of it is that resurrection of the, of the unjust at the end of the millennium. People that will actually listen to him again. And perhaps it's part of the test for those who grew up without sin unto salvation. Now that there's some opposition, do you still want to hold on to what you've learned over this thousand years of peace? Hope so. Now, verse 112, during this little season, Michael, the seventh angel, even the archangel, shall gather together his armies, even the hosts of heaven. Meanwhile, 113, the devil shall gather together his armies, even the hosts of hell, and shall come up to battle against Michael and his armies. We saw that in the preface to the Doctrine and Covenants, too. That the closer we get to the last days, the more polarization there will be. That Satan will have dominion, control over his armies, and the Lord will have power over his saints. Satan will take away the agency of those who follow him, addictive sin. The Lord won't have to take away the agency of the righteous because they will offer it to him. Their wills consumed in his. But these are all, that's all preparatory for this final battle. Good versus evil. Then verse 114, then cometh the battle of the great God. And the devil and his army shall be cast away into their own place that they shall not have power over the saints anymore at all. No more little season after this little season is over. It is done. It is truly finished. 115, for Michael shall fight their battles and shall overcome him who seeketh the throne of him who sitteth upon the throne, even the Lamb. What an irony. The Lord was offering us the throne all along. We just had to receive it in his way. And Satan, who tried to usurp the throne, will be cast away infinitely far from it. Verse 116, this is the glory of God 
and the sanctified, and they shall not any more see death. It has fully been conquered. The Lord will take captivity itself captive, and death itself. I love how Paul says it and Abinadi says it. I mean, can you imagine talking smack to, to the grim reaper? Well, they did. Oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, grave, where is thy victory? It's been swallowed up in Christ. Such a powerful promise. All that we've seen there in these last two pages or so, that is, that's our, like I said, our mini version of the book of Revelation. It is signs of the times. It is Armageddon. It is second coming. It is destruction of the wicked. It is resurrection of the just and the unjust. It is binding the adversary and then loosing him for a little season and then closing the book. And it, it is all completely done. It's an incredible encapsulation of all we saw there in that great last apocalypse of John. And then, but the Lord's not done with the revelation here. And that's what amazes me. In fact, as we shift from mini book of Revelation to the rest of section 88, notice the connective word the Lord starts verse 117 with. Therefore. Now, we've talked about therefore as a powerful conjunction before. Therefore means consequently, or as a result, you understand what the Lord's doing? He's, this whole thing, this like the last 20 verses or so has been this beautiful setup for what he's about to give us now. Therefore, if you see yourself in this second coming context and understand the signs of the times and what it means to be a latter day saint, to be warned and then go warn your neighbor, to gain as much religious and secular education as you can because you've got missions to perform and callings to magnify, all of this in the context of the final battle of good and evil. Therefore, verse 117, Verily I say unto you, my friends, call your solemn assembly as I have commanded you. In other words, you've got to build your temple. The temple that he is calling them to build in Kirtland is in the context of the final days. It is in anticipation of Armageddon and of Adam and Diamon. Call your solemn assembly, he says. And then he tells you all this about the last days and the signs of the times and the second coming and the destruction of the wicked. Therefore, call your solemn assembly. It's like, in case you didn't get my hint the first time of just how important this was, of tarrying here and being sober and taking it seriously and getting rid of idleness and light-mindedness, which I see all too much of here in Kirtland, as well as there in, in Independence, You've got to get up to speed. You've got to let me hasten my work instead of slowing me down. Let me paint the picture a little more graphically. In the eternal contest between good and evil that you are playing out right before you. Therefore, get going. Call your solemn assembly. Verse 118, And as all have not faith, seek ye diligently and teach one another words of wisdom, Yea, seek out of the best books words of wisdom. Seek learning, even by study and also by faith. You see, if 117, call your solemn assembly, was a repeat of what he said earlier about calling the solemn assembly, then 118 is a repeat of what he just said back in 78 and 79 and 80 about learning. Why is this so important? 
if it was if it wasn't enough for my son to have that wake up call of what well school actually matters because I have missions and callings to perform. Well, if he if he needed another round of reminder, then perhaps the rest of this revelation with its focus on the end of the world and the signs of the times and the second coming and the millennial reign, that's what this is for. Earth life is boot camp, my friends, because there's a battle on its way and we need to be up to speed. So teach one another. Actually, first, seek diligently. Learn all you can. Then teach one another words of wisdom. Seek it out of the best possible books and seek it by study, there's your head, but also by faith, there's your heart. There's the two body parts God is always aiming at. And those that are the pure rationalists and only want to study things, you've got to open your heart to learn by faith. Whereas you pure spiritualists and just want to feel things, well, open your mind and do some homework. Study these things too. Verse 119 becomes more clearly temple focused. Organize yourselves. Prepare every needful thing. Remember we saw those two verbs earlier? Organize, prepare, sanctify, all of that. And what are some of these needful things they need to prepare? It'll all come through the temple. Establish a house. And then these seven words to describe it. Seven, great number. One for every trumpet blast. One for every day of creation. A house of prayer. A house of fasting. A house of faith. A house of learning. A house of glory. A house of order. Sum it all up. Number seven, a house of God. If it's a house of prayer and a house of fasting, he asked them to do that already. Continue in your prayer and fasting. Connect heavenward with this. A house of faith. Since all have not faith, seek ye diligently. Teach one another words of wisdom. A house of learning, of heaven and earth, of spiritual and secular, so you can fulfill callings, magnify callings, fulfill missions. A house of glory. I'm trying to prepare you for glory, to abide the law of whatever kingdom will end up quickening you. A house of order. Look at the order of the universe all around you and you will see me moving in my majesty and power. A house of God. Don't just see me, come to know me. And the best place to know me is to visit me in my house. There's something about going to someone's home and seeing them in their own environment. It's like, ah, these are the walls that are before them. Come to God's house. In fact, in their case, build it. Verse 120, why do we need a place like that? That your incomings may be in the name of the Lord, that your outgoings may be in the name of the Lord. Sounds like the mezuzah that Jews would put on the outside of their homes so that every time they came in and out, they would remember God. I think we can do a lot better at that. That all your salutations may be in the name of the Lord, with uplifted hands unto the Most High. Do we see one another in those terms? In the name of the Lord. Verse 121, Therefore cease from all your light speeches, from all laughter, from all your lustful desires, from all your pride and light-mindedness, from all your wicked doings. It's that soberness we were talking about a couple of pages ago. He's not condemning a sense of humor here. 
I am so grateful for the incredible senses of humor we've heard from prophets and apostles, from the pulpit even in general conference. I'm grateful for that, that lightheartedness. But have you noticed it never d descends into light-mindedness? Their sense of humor never infringes upon their sense of the sacred. And that's important. Take seriously serious things. Now, several times he's talked about the need for teaching one another. As a teacher, I'm grateful for that. So in 122, he explains it at more length. Appoint among yourselves a teacher and let not all be spokesmen at once. I've had a few classes like that. They're kind of chaotic. But let one speak at a time and let all listen unto his sayings. Now, that doesn't sound like just one lecturer the entire time, because keep reading. That when all have spoken, ah, okay, so that's how it's working. Everyone needs to listen, but everyone needs to speak. When all have spoken, that all may be edified of all, and that every man may have an equal privilege. Rewind to section 50, and what did we see? Mutual benefit, mutual edification, mutual understanding, mutual rejoicing. You're learning from me, I'm learning from you. It's one of the great things about gospel learning. We're all in this together. Rewind a little further, section 46. And everyone has different spiritual gifts. Why? So that I end up needing yours just like you need mine. That all can be edified of all. It is Zion we're trying to build, right? And so if we're going to be one heart and one mind, a lot of this is mutual edification. 123. How do we get there? See that you love one another. Cease to be covetous, because that's what gets in the way of love. Learn to impart one to another as the gospel requires. So quit being covetous, wanting what other people have. Quit being covetous of your own stuff. Martin Harris had to learn that, right? In other words, give to one another. It's the oneness that is required for us to, be, to belong to God. If you are not one, you are not mine. Well, that's what he's trying to help us get to. Now, 124, he continues, and this, next week we'll study section 89, which is the word of wisdom. I hope you include section 88, verse 124, as part of the word of wisdom. It's part of our organizing ourselves and preparing every needful thing. It's part of our getting up to speed to become more Christ-like. 124, cease to be idle. We've seen in the past that connection between idleness and idleness, I-D-L-E and I-D-O-L. Worship is work, so we can't be idle. Cease to be unclean. He is trying to purify and sanctify us. Cease to find fault one with another. We're trying to be one after all. And then how's this for word of wisdom? Cease to sleep longer than is needful. Uh-oh, I can hear my teenage children groaning over this one. Retire to thy bed early that ye may not be weary. Arise early, that your bodies and your minds may be invigorated. I mean, Ben Franklin would love this one, right? Early to bed and early to rise makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. Well, it's, it's good doctrine and not just good practice. Maybe there is a literal component of seeking God early so that he can be found. Whatever time of day it happens to be, but is it early enough in the priority list that I may not get to the other things that I, ought, that I need to do today, but I will definitely seek and find the Lord. Well, whatever your daily schedule might be, verse 125 puts it all in perspective, above all things. So when all is said and done, this is still the most important. Clothe yourselves with the bond of charity, as with a mantle, 
which is the bond of perfectness and peace. There's the dress code. The dress code for the second coming. We think of, of wearing white raiment, uh, which is described in the book of Revelation and the celestial city and the celestial kingdom and so on. But more than anything, even the way he puts it, the, which is a mantle. We think of the mantle of the prophet or the mantle of Elijah being passed down to Elisha and so on. I don't know if there's a better verse to describe what that mantle consists of. It's charity. In fact, it's the bond of charity. It's what binds us together, bound in the bundle of life, as Abigail said to David. It's charity. It's loving one another. By this you may know that you are my disciples. That's the mantle you wear. It's the bond of perfectness and peace. It's sometimes hard to have both of those. To me, it's another contrary to prove. It's like speaking the truth in love. The truth, there's perfectness. In love, there's peace. Keeping the first great commandment, the vertical, there's perfectness. I'm obedient. I honor God. But the second great commandment, the horizontal one, I love my neighbor. Well, there's peace. I can live peaceably with them. Wow, if that seems like more than you can handle, it probably is. It's more than I can handle. No wonder I need divine help. So on 126, pray for it. In fact, pray always that ye may not faint until I come. Behold and lo, I will come quickly and receive you unto myself. Amen. Now this revelation was received over a period of time. And there at the end of 126, amen is the end of, of round one. There's a little bit more to come, and it has to do with the school of the prophets, sometimes called the school of the elders. The, even Harvard and Yale, when they were first established by the Puritans, they were known as schools of the prophets. I remember in, their, in the courtyard at the Vanderbilt Divinity School where I went, there's this kind of carving that says in Latin, the school of the prophets, trying to prepare. I mean, that's what divinity school is for. You're supposed to prepare divines people that will speak of God and speak for God. And in a way, that's one of the functions of a temple also. To, I mean, to work our way through this, he's taught us such big picture doctrine. In addition, you know, another comforter and the light of Christ and it fills the immensity of space and redemption and resurrection and degrees of glory and your place in the cosmos, if you'll prepare yourself and sanctify yourself and have an eye single to my glory. You need to call a solemn assembly and come together and prepare yourselves to be missionaries around the world, to, to warn your neighbor as you've been warned. So prepare for that. Oh, and you've got a lot to prepare for because it's all end of the world, last days, second coming preparation. So build a temple and establish the kind of house that you'll need to be raised in. Pray for that. Prepare for that. And this school of the prophets, well, more than anything else, will help get you up to speed in, in the context of all I've been talking about. So he says in verse 127, again, the order of the house prepared for the presidency of the school of the prophets, established for their instruction in all things that are expedient for them, even for all the officers of the church, or in other words, those who are called to the ministry in the church, beginning at the high priests, even down to the deacons. Now, he goes top to bottom there, okay, from, from presidency down to deacons. In fact, anyone called to the ministry in the church. And since every member a missionary, well, that includes us all. 
And this school of the prophets is meant to instruct you. It's meant to prepare you. I remember this hitting me after going through years of divinity school and understanding all the things that, that uh, a life of the, a man of the cloth uh, went into their training. And it struck me, I've been doing that my whole life. What, what other people go to divinity school to learn and to become, we went to primary and young men and young women and seminary and institute for. Life as a Latter-day Saint is divinity school. I don't know if I talk about divinity school too much, but I have people come like, oh, that's so amazing. I, I want to go to divinity school. And part of me is like, you already are. Your life in the church has been divinity school. You, your, your theological education, we call it Sunday school and seminary and institute. Your courses in homiletics, we call that giving talks in church. Your courses in liturgics, you get to participate in ordinances at church and in the temple whenever you choose. Uh, your course in pastoral care. We used to call it home and visiting teaching. Now we call it ministering. It's the same thing. Need to brush up on your ecclesiology? Just wait. You'll probably have a leadership calling where you're trying to run an organization. Believe me. No need for an official divinity school. You've been enrolled in the school of the prophets. And the Lord is trying to prepare you to be like him. How was this school supposed to run? It's fascinating. 128. This shall be the order of the house of the presidency of the school. He that is appointed to be president or teacher shall be found standing in his place in the house which shall be prepared for him. Now I think there's some things that are literal there. 129, he says, therefore he shall be first in the house of God, in a place that the congregation in the house may hear his words carefully and distinctly, not with loud speech. I mean, after all, if we're all going to be listening one to another and all edified of all, uh, we need to have a, you know, be close enough that we can actually listen to one another. And since somebody's got to open the building uh, or, or turn on the lights or, or set up the, the chairs or the chalkboard, then the teacher should be there first. Now, I, again, I think there's some literal uh, truth to that of showing up. I always feel guilty and I'm trying to get, get some last minute things together and I run off to my classroom and students are already there waiting for me. I'm like, oh, sorry, I didn't fulfill my responsibility in this school of the prophets. But I think in many ways also it's teacher. If you're teaching other people, have you taught yourself? Now, I, I, there is a, a, a scary thing to teach in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. When you have a perfect gospel as an imperfect person. Their uh, hypocrisy, I guess you could say, is an occupational hazard for any of us who teach the perfect gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's all of us. But I would say it's only hypocrisy if there's no intention on your part to want to be there. I'm teaching things, standards that I'm reaching for, not standards that I only, I'm only paying lip service to. To be the first in the house, I just wonder if there's something there of this is something I'm really trying to live in my own imperfect ways, but I'm teaching from, from reality. I'm teaching from a place of sincerity. I'm teaching from a place of honest desire to rise with you to the level that God has laid out for each of us. I'm not there yet. I won't be the first to arrive. But as I've prepared myself to teach and invite the rest of you, 
I am the first person to, to pay attention to my own message. I'm all ears, even if I have to be all mouth. I want to live the things that I'm teaching. I've obtained the word before I'm here declaring it. In verse 130, when he cometh into the house of God, for he should be the first in the house. Behold, this is beautiful, that he may be an example. And again, symbolically speaking, that's what I'm getting at. Uh, uh, teachers, can we do our very best to be beautiful examples of striving to live the principles that we've been called upon to teach? 131, let him offer himself in prayer upon his knees before God, in token or remembrance of the everlasting covenant. What a beautiful way to prepare to teach. Usually when I'm at the Institute and it's time to rush off to a classroom in hopes that I'll be the first one there, I will kneel and pray for God's help. But I wonder if I'm doing enough of 131. Am I offering myself? Or am I just like, Heavenly Father, Please don't let me screw this up or bless us with the spirit today in class. But a prayer of self-sacrifice, Heavenly Father, help me get out of thy way. I used to pray, Heavenly Father, please send the spirit to testify of the things I'm going to teach. Over the years, that has changed to a more often prayer of Heavenly Father, help me know to teach the things you want to testify of. Help me get out of thy way. Let, help me offer myself in prayer. Upon my knees, am I humble enough that I'm not looking down on my students, but I'm looking up through them at the Lord, wondering what do they need from Thee? Am I kneeling? Am I before God, recognizing He's in the classroom? I remember as an early young teacher, if ever someone would come to observe class, I get so nervous. It's the principal, or it's, it's an administrator, and I, ah... I don't worry about that so much anymore because I've realized that every class I do have the ultimate observer that hopefully isn't in the back of the classroom but is in the front and hopefully I'm not standing in his way that if I can offer myself, if I can kneel before him and understand that he is the one that... It, I remember that in a prayer once. I remember praying and saying, Heavenly Father, please help me teach my students and then I caught myself with that possessive pronoun and said, they're not my students, they're thine. Help me teach thy children in a way that they can see that this is coming from thee. It's before God. And do it all in token or remembrance of the everlasting covenant, which is the fullness of the gospel. The promise that God made in premortality to bring us all home. That's the risk that Satan was trying to leverage. He can't guarantee you return passage. I can to mitigate that risk, what was the everlasting covenant? I will make sure every one of you has the chance to come home. I'll place that homing beacon. I'll place that tuning fork. I will hit mine as often as I can. I will send servants forth to warn their neighbors. And in remembrance of the everlasting covenant, I have come to teach, to try to help you home. I promised I would do that in premortality, and so did you. In verse 132, when any shall come in after him, and I love this, it, it, this would be hard to do literally in every classroom in the church, but symbolically, 
I mean, I, they did this literally in the School of the Prophets. Can you imagine if we did something similar or if it was least in our mind and heart at the beginning of any time disciples came together in his name? Where two or three are gathered in my name, there shall I be in the midst of them. Well, imagine this, 132. When any shall come in after him, let the teacher arise to recognize, I, I'm in the presence of someone important, okay? I arise. And with uplifted hands to heaven, yea, even directly, salute his brother or brethren with these words. Remember, you're building this temple, all your incomings, all your outgoings, all your salutations in the name of the Lord. Well, here's this salutation to your students. 133. Art thou a brother or brethren? I salute you. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, in token or remembrance of the everlasting covenant, in which covenant I receive you to fellowship, in a determination that is fixed, immovable, unchangeable, to be your friend and brother, through the grace of God in the bonds of love, to walk in all the commandments of God blameless in thanksgiving forever and ever. Amen. Can you imagine that kind of greeting? Are you a brother? Are you brethren? Because I'm going to treat you that way. In remembrance of the everlasting covenant. I'm remembering that. That's why I came. Is that why you came? We're here to help each other home. I help you. You help me. I'll listen to you. You listen to me. All this mutual edification in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's that's the covenant I make. And I want to receive you into fellowship, not just, not just a studentship. For me, it's a beautiful thing. I just met with one of my old students. I taught her, oh, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago. And, and we, uh, we reconnected uh, recently. And a week or two before that, another old student of mine, he and I went to lunch together. And, and to me, I love when teenage, teenage students now become adult friends. And it usually takes them a while to stop calling me Brother Halverson. Uh, but to reassure them, we're on the same level now. Yeah, I know I'm still older. I have gray hair to show it. But, but I'm just Jared. And how's your family? And what, what, what are you going through? And what can you teach me? It's, a, it's amazing to have that kind of fellowship and friendship and to be determined with a determination that's fixed, immovable, unchangeable. That, that's some serious determination. I don't care if you don't want to be here to a struggling student. Uh, the fact that you came at all, I'm bound by this covenant. I am connected to you through the bonds of love. That's the mantle of charity that we're all supposed to be wearing. To be your friend, to be your brother. It's and nothing can get in the way of that. Not even you. Okay, my determination is fixed. It's immovable. It's unchangeable. And the idea of friend and brother, I was, I was wrestling with those and thinking, what's the difference? And I think there is one. And each are beautiful in, in, in their own way. There's something about having a friend. They didn't have to like you uh, because there, were, there was no, they're not family, right? They, you chose each other. There's something wonderful about that, to be your friend, on the flip side, there's something incredible about being family because you do, I mean, that's a good definition of family, someone who puts up with you when no one else will. Uh, I want to be above and beyond that. I want to be above family to be a friend, but I want to be above friend to be a family. I'm not sure which is higher, to be honest. 
but to have that kind of desire for a relationship with, with one another, along with the desire to keep God's commandments, to be blameless. I know I won't be perfect. I know I will fall short of what I'm trying to teach you, but I do have a, a covenant determination to get there. And I know Christ won't give up on me as, as I'm striving. There's cause for thanksgiving forever and ever. Then in verse 134, He that is found unworthy of this salutation shall not have place among you, for ye shall not suffer that mine house shall be polluted by him. I mean, in some ways, imagine the Lord. He is the ultimate teacher. He is the perfect liver of these truths. He's the one that is in the house first. It is his house after all. Imagine him giving us that salutation as we enter, saluting us in the name of Jesus Christ, since he is Jesus Christ. Talk about a fixed commitment. Talk about a determination that is immovable. Talk about the bonds of love. Our friend, capital F, our brother, capital B. Talk about one who does walk in God's commandments blamelessly and thanks God for the privilege and gives God the glory for every step. Am I worthy of his salutation? Because if not, I can't stay in his house. He invited me in, but it is his home, and it's a house of order. Now, verse 135, He that cometh in, and is faithful before me, and is a brother, or if they be brethren, they shall salute the president or teacher with uplifted hands to heaven with this same prayer and covenant, or, and I'm grateful for this option, it's a little faster, by saying amen <laughs> in token of the same. Like I said, we don't do this literally in, in our day, but... Symbolically, can we? I hope so. I had that verse in mind as I sat down to begin this lesson today. And I do salute you, my friends, my brothers and sisters. And I pray that you can sense a determination that's fixed and immovable and unchangeable to, to seek fellowship, to try to lift you as you lift me, since we really are all in this together. If we can all share a little amen over that, we really will be one. And by being one, we will be. We belong to him. 136. We're almost there. Behold, verily I say unto you, this is an ensample unto you for a salutation to one another in the house of God, in the school of the prophets. That's just one example. There are other ways, other means to show that kind of bond of charity, uh, the, that mantle of love. But however you do it, whether it's a handshake or a fist bump or a high five or a hug or un abrazo uh, to wonderful friends of mine uh, from, from Vanderbilt, both getting PhDs in, in Spanish. Uh, they spoke so much better than I did, obviously. But we still speak of that as we email one another. And that's our, our send-off. Un abrazo. Uh, and, and there is that sense of, of love. Whatever form you choose, let it follow the example that's described here of oneness with each other on the way to oneness with God. Verse 137, And ye are called to do this by prayer and thanksgiving, as the Spirit shall give utterance in all your doings in the house of the Lord, in the school of the prophets, that it may become a sanctuary, a tabernacle of the Holy Spirit to your edification. A sanctuary? We're back on home base now, right? 
safe from the chaos that is outside us, to allow our gospel learning, to become, to allow the temple to become whatever holy ground we stand on and be not moved. Remember, that's how section 87 ended, right? That's war poured out upon all nations. So you stand in holy places, be not moved. This is one of the holiest places imaginable. Uh, this kind of a house, a sanctuary, a tabernacle for the Holy Spirit to edify, to build us up. 138, ye shall not receive any among you into the school, save he is clean from the blood of this generation. Here's your temple recommend. And 139, he shall be received by the ordinance of the washing of feet. For unto this end was the ordinance of the washing of feet instituted. And that is something that Joseph and the saints practiced at the school of the prophets. Joseph himself would wash their feet. Would we be willing to do the same? Again, the salutation goes both ways. And whoever is, is chief among you, let him be servant of all. When you think of the washing of feet from the Last Supper, be a Jesus. Don't be a Peter. Peter at the beginning, remember, he was all or nothing. He's like, no, you'll never wash my feet. There's the nothing side. And when Jesus explained it, then you have nothing, no, no part of me. Then he's like, well, then wash everything. And Jesus is like, nope, you overcorrected. You went from nothing to everything. Find the Goldilocks zone, Peter. Okay, fine. Be faithful, but not overzealous. Be, be, be diligent and temperate in all things. Understand what I'm after. Allow me to serve you. You go out and then serve others. Verse 140, again, the ordinance of washing feet is to be administered by the president or presiding elder of the church. Like I said, Joseph did it. And then 141, the revelation ends. It is to be commenced with prayer. And after partaking of bread and wine, he is to gird himself according to the pattern given in the 13th chapter of John's testimony concerning me. Amen. What's amazing about calling attention to that 13th chapter of John is it places every class period of the School of the Prophets in the context of the Last Supper. You first elders in this last dispensation, this whole thing is the Last Supper. And the Lord is trying to cleanse us so that we can then bear off the kingdom triumphant. Allow me to cleanse you. Allow me to covenant with you. Allow me to to prepare you for all that lies ahead. My peace I leave with you. Isn't that how we started this whole lesson? This olive leaf that the Lord is, is passing them? That's the Last Supper. As the Lord is reassuring them that his work is about to be fulfilled in Gethsemane and Calvary and in the garden tomb. Our work is just beginning. But we can prepare for it. We can prepare for it in the school of the prophets. We can prepare for it in the temple of God. To think about what he taught us throughout this entire revelation, it's all temple-based. The temple is a place of peace amid the chaos of war, or even just the chaos of life, which can sometimes feel like a war. The temple is a place to seek that other comforter and to bask in the light of Christ. The temple is a place to learn of redemption and resurrection, of progressing, seeing yourself from telestial to terrestrial to celestial. The temple is a place to sense the structure and the safety of God's law, a place where we can develop the Christ-like attributes, 
that will allow us to cleave unto him as light cleaveth unto light. The temple is a place to find one's place in the cosmos, to recognize the infinite and the intimate sides of our Father in heaven. The temple is a place to draw near to the Lord, to come to see him and to know him and allow him to come near unto you. It's a place to deepen our spiritual education, to seek diligently and to learn by study and also by faith. The temple's a place to prepare for our mission in life, to help prepare the earth for the second coming of Jesus Christ. The temple is our school of the prophets, and it is a house of prayer and of fasting, a house of faith and of learning. It's a house of glory. It's a house of order. It's a house of God. This is why we need temples. It's why they needed to build it in Kirtland. It's why they needed to build it in Independence. It's why President Nelson is dotting the earth at an ever-accelerating rate so that we have a sanctuary, so that we have a tabernacle for the Spirit, so we have a place where heaven and earth can meet and that we can come together with God to feel close to Him. I testify of the need for these sacred buildings especially in the midst of all this chaos and commotion that we see prophesied of in section 87. The Lord's olive leaf, it's plucked from the tree of life. It's right there in the paradise of God. And if we will simply come unto him, we can rejoice in the light and the joy of his countenance. We can come into his home and if we can do that, what could possibly keep us from coming into his kingdom?